Welcome to another episode of Hollowed Waters Journal's podcast. Uh, I'm Matt Sapinski, the host and publisher of Hollowed Waters Journal, and we thank everyone for coming in and listening to our podcast. Um, our listeners have been growing by the day, and we uh, we hope you're really enjoying um, what we've been doing and the people we've had. Um, this podcast is only as good as the quality of the people uh, that have been on this thing, and we've been blessed so gratefully with some of the most talented and passionate people, and uh, that's what our journey is all about: is the passion and the talent. And 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 it's so easy once you you know you know when you talk to so many, there's so many great fly fishers out there, and there's so many people that uh, that embody the whole thing. But there's only a few that really. Um, their whole life is committed to to taking this whole beautiful art that we're in uh, and craft that we're in to the next level. And the people we've had so far on our podcast have been just amazing. Uh, we are now running the Migratory Space Series. It's about uh, the two-handed passion and uh, beautiful salmon steelhead and Lake Run Browns, Coast of Brook Trout. We're talking about the whole thing and we're going to have some incredible guests. We just had a, a really super guy uh, that did a Four and a half part series. So a lot of you guys are probably listening to it. But um, uh, when I met Topher, um, the first time I talked to Topher Brown, uh, and we're both Atlantic salmon geeks, uh, I think our phone call lasted over four hours, the first phone call we had. And it was just like crazy. But uh, that's where the passion takes you. It takes you, you want to explore every detail. You want to um, peel away every layer of the experience. And that's what we're all about. And that's the people that we have. And we have some more great people coming up. This series is going to last all the way till uh, late spring. And then we're going to dive into a new trout series. Uh, but um, we got tons of people coming up. But today we got a really super guy that, um, geez, I've known for, for 25 years now. We grew up in the same neighborhood. Um, we're both steelhead addicts and we, you know, we, we've gone into directions that are very similar. Um, it's today's, it's about the mastery of Rick Custich and, uh, the genesis of modern Great Lake steelhead fly fishing dreams. And, and desires and everything that we 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 had to come through to understand these fish and the years of of changing techniques and concepts and 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 you know how how the evolution of a steelheader just takes place and it and it and it happened on the west coast to so many great people and it happens in the to great lakes and and rick and i were sort of at that point where we were trying to take it to the next level there wasn't really much out there when we were playing around in the 90s and uh we were, you know, doing things in back, you know, on the Niagara River and places like that. Um, so we're going to shuffle off to Buffalo and and back to the home waters of New York and, and talk steelhead and spay and Great Lakes fly fishing, New York trout, uh, throw Lake Run Browns in there, steelhead alley, BC steelhead. Man, we got so much to talk about spay and tube fly designs. So uh, sit back, um, pour yourself one. Uh, smoke them if you got them, do what you want to do to make yourself feel comfortable. And uh, we really appreciate you guys listening and we appreciate all the questions. We've been inundated with a lot of questions from listeners, which is great. And I'm going to have a few for us today. Um, so with all that, uh, Rick is, a, Rick is a, a super guy, man. He's uh, has such a background. He's an author, a naturalist, photographer, passionate spay master. Um, Rick is all of these and uh, founding father of the modern Great Lake Steelhead Movement. Um, his passion starts with, with his brother, Jerry, um, back in, in, in Grand Island in Buffalo, New York and that whole area. And, uh, 
his books uh, set the Bible, set the pace, set the groundwork for the whole experience, uh, starting in Steelhead Alley and 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 on the Cataraugus fly fishing for Great Lakes. Steelhead uh, was was the first book that he and Jerry published. His modern masterpiece right now, Advanced Fly Fishing for Great Lakes Steelhead. His earlier works that he published at West River Road were were like sort of institutional Bibles. They were the foundation of of the sport, fly fishing the Great Lakes tributaries. I remember reading that back in the 90s. So this cat is switched on. And without further ado, uh, no one wants to listen to me talk anymore. And it's going to be all about Rick Custage. So without further ado, it is my pleasure to introduce that two-handed swinging conquistador of the Cataragas, the Great Lakes two-ply troubadour of the tributaries, the one and only Rick Kustich. How the hell are you in Buffalo, Rick? Doing great, Matt. That's that's one hell of an introduction. I, I hope I can live up to that in this in the uh, time we're talking here. Um, but it's uh, I've been really looking forward to this and looking forward to chatting with you. It's been uh, it's been a while, and it's great to reconnect for sure. Awesomeness, yeah. It's. Uh, it's it's so cool. I remember years ago you were out here and we were fishing the Muskegon and we're still thinking about what we wanted to do in our lives and we're thinking about what we wanted to do with 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 this whole steelhead gig and we weren't you know back then we were it was the old game of uh, noodle rods and 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 long long rods and bottom nymphing and very light touches and and you know tiny little you know salmon fleas and and the salmon river experience and. Uh, uh, it was a, it was an interesting time and it was all based on, um, the foundation really came, a lot of it came from, uh, Bruce Richards and Scientific Angler and, and Ray Schmidt and those guys that started that whole, uh, running line revolution and evolution. And it was sort of like, these are, these are steelhead rainbows that, that eat nymphs, which they still do. And, uh, and it was sort of, this is the way you do it. And you, you chunk on a chunk on a piece of lead and, uh, um, you, you get down and dirty and you catch fish and they bite. And, uh, it was, it was fairly simple. And today we've taken that game up, um, so many, so many notches to so many different levels, which we're going to, this whole podcast is going to talk about, but we're, we're, you know, our paths cross really early grand Island, West river Legion drive. I remember when I came over and dropped some plies off or something for one of your books or something. I can't remember what it was back in 90, geez, I'm going to say 98, 99, somewhere around then. Or two thousand, I can't. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it probably it's, was around ninety-eight, Matt, because that would have been, uh, yeah, for the Great Lakes Steelhead book. Yeah. So, you know, Rick, where did you your foundation? Where did you, you know, how did you get bit by all this? Is it is it is it um, genetic? Is it in the family? Is it a grandfather? Um, does it? You know, sometimes this this gene is latent and passes a generation. But where did you get bit by this whole freaking thing that you're well, into? Well, I think you know, really, you know, first of all, just you know, where just mentioning where we grew up. I mean, you really couldn't go anywhere with uh, out looking at water and seeing water literally surround, you know, living on an Island surrounded by water. I mean, that's going to be the, you know, obviously a, <laughs> you know, a first place where it's hard to, hard to ignore what, what surrounds and how you can take advantage of it. But really my family was a huge influence and in whether, it, you know, every male role model in my life, my dad, my grandfather, uh, uncle, cousin, um, as you mentioned, my brother, even my brother-in-law when I was a little, as I got a little bit older, they were all fishermen. So, you know, there was no uh, lack of people that, that could take me fishing. And, um, you know, most of them saw to it that uh, 
uh, anytime I wanted to go that uh, they would be available. Even my mom would take me down to the, when nobody else was available, would take me down the river when I was young and uh, do some bass yeah. fishing. So they really just a, a tremendous family influence. And, um, you know, with the water right there, just, I guess it was inevitable that, uh, you know, I would lead down that road. Did you, uh, did you grow up on Grand Island or where did yeah, you live? Yeah, lived there, lived there all my life. So I started on Alt, Alt Boulevard. Right. And then, then, um, I built that house on, uh, Legion Drive in like, yeah. eh, 86, I think. Yeah. Alt Boulevard. I used to know the Gorris family. Oh yeah. Remember yeah, them? Yeah, yeah. Two, oh yeah, absolutely. Jeff Gorris is, yeah. Two Jeff's. attractive little daughters. I dated one of the daughters. She was such a cutie. Uh, Cheryl, I think yeah, Cheryl, Cheryl Gorris. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Jeff's still one of my, uh, one of my best friends. Still talk oh, to him all the time. That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, if you ever run into Cheryl, tell her, uh, Tell her I said uh, hi. Will do. Will do. You'll remember sure, me. Um, yeah. I, I was at Ohio State, and uh, I, it was like sort of my summer flings when I'd come back from school, <laughs> uh, you know, hanging out on Grand Island and back in the old days. But um, so you did you you fished a lot of bass? I would take it on West River Road, and then how did you get? Um, so where did the trout and salmon and steelhead passion? Where did that start to get you? And and what was your first experience? Where was your first steelhead caught? Where, you know, where did this, all that, all this happen? Well, the first, the first, uh, let me just, I'll step back really the, the trout fishing. My, my brother-in-law, um, who was married to my sister, um, he, he wasn't a fly fisherman, but he just really enjoyed fishing the trout streams down the Southern tier. And, um, he really just, he, I, I don't know how he did it. He, he worked down in that area a lot. He just knew every little nook and cranny, every little stream everywhere. And we would, he would take me a lot and we would always go to a different spot. And that really, um, I think endeared me to the trout fishing and just kind of that exploration and being on a stream. And, and, you know, that really led to, um, me wanting to learn about trout or learn about fly fishing because I knew, you know, we were bait fishing back in those days. And I, I just knew there was a lot more to it. You know, I saw a little bit of it on TV, see a little bit of it in, you know, on the outdoor magazines. So I, that was my I, I invitation as it were into, into fly fishing. I knew I had to, you know, at some point learn how to, how to cast a fly rod and learn how to fly fish. And that was probably when he was taking me down there, I was probably like 10, 11 years old. So I started yeah, fly we fishing. probably we probably bumped into each other, Rick. Because had to. So which streams did? So let me ask you this: Were you a salted minnow guy? Oh yeah, or were you absolutely. A worm guy, yeah, red worms. Oh well, both, both, <laughs> but but a lot of salted minnows, yeah, and the double hook, the whole yeah. double hook thing. And um, yeah, it, it had to be. I mean, we fished, yeah, the Cataraugus, Ishawa, um, you know, East Coy, West Coy. You know, and then Crazy. just a lot of other, just a lot of other nooks and crannies too. You know, some streams that I, that probably could never find again. Elton um, Creek. Do you remember Elton Creek? Mm-hmm. Actually, actually, Elton is um, a good stream right now, and it's in the upper ends have some, uh, you know, some reasonable natural reproduction. So I caught my first brown trout on Elton Creek, mm-hmm. right by the bridge. Yep. Yeah, right in right in Delavan. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, and that was like I think most, I, I think I might have caught my first one there too. To be honest, isn't that crazy? Yeah. And, and it was like it was like a experience that it was like you were touched. You were like Paul riding to to beat up on the Corinthians or somebody, and you got knocked mm-hmm. off your horse. And you're like, this is what you're going to do the rest of your life. And yeah. you're just addicted to trout, and and it just bites you. And yeah. and then look at um, thousands of years later uh, in the new era, we're sitting here talking about 
what happened in the past. And that's, that's where the passion starts. And, and that's what, um, you know, this whole, this whole experience is about your brother went to, to Bishop Duffy high school yeah. and I went there for one year too. Yeah. And uh, he almost was, he, Jerry was going to, I want to do a podcast with Jerry cause he's such a brilliant guy for yeah. me. He makes bamboo rods and uh, he's such a phenomenal writer, um, which we're going to get into, you know, where, where did you get, where did you start with your, well, well, first of all, where did you catch your first steelhead? And then um, how did you get bit by writing about steelhead? Where, where yes. did that come from? And so did steel, you steelhead, you know, the, I, I have to say that the timing, at least from a Great Lakes standpoint, was just perfect uh, in terms of I had this increasing interest in fishing at the same time, the the Great Lakes fishery, although, you know, it had existed for the steelhead fishery had existed almost for a hundred years. It really started to ramp up as different agencies were, were stocking, you know, in New York, we're stocking more steelhead just to kind of balance out the, the, um, steelhead and salmon to, to balance out the, the lakes and to, to kind of get the, um, the bait fish situation back in, in shape. And I think that, that, just was a perfect timing for me. So, uh, you know, where I caught my first one was on the Niagara and I started fishing the Niagara quite a bit as just really when I was able to drive and it was the closest place to fish. And I was spending a lot of time down there and, you know, first one I caught, I, you know, not too proud to say it was caught on an egg sack. And, uh, that's really kind of how it got started. I didn't catch too many that fishing that way, but I, I did catch my first few. Yeah, and I everybody still, gets them on hexax. Yeah. I mean, if you were an hexax and you were not doing it, man, you I were know. doing something. I, was, well, I, I did sponge. Did you do sponge? In, I don't uh, know if I ever did sponge. You know, the sponge. I think I might have went from eggsacks to glow bucks. So I did sponge because yeah. I couldn't get eggsacks one winter, and there was a there was a bait shop right at the Whirlpool Bridge. Oh yeah, yeah. And, and yeah. he said, "Well, no, if we, no we're out of." Remember that guy? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And he uh, he said, "If we don't get we we don't have any spawn sacks and." Uh, so he said, just take, just, just get some sponge or red sponge and, or dye sponge. I think I, I got my mother to get me dye mm-hmm. and put it in Vaseline petroleum jelly. And he says it works even better because yeah. it stinks more. Um, so, you know, we, that's, that's what you did. Where did you, where did you catch your first, um, one on the Niagara? Which, where, where Whirlpool or Devil's Hole? But I, I would spend a lot of, I've fished a lot right down by the power plant. You okay. Walk down that big, long road. You can park down there now. They got it. The people today have it easy. We used to have to walk down that road and then walk back out. But uh, yeah, so that that area, I just just fish. So that's basically the the lower part of you know Devil's Hole. There um, is where I spent a lot of time when I was younger. And we'd fish that at night a lot of times for salmon too. We'd fish all you know well into the the nighttime. So it was an easy place to get in and out of from that standpoint too. Um, but yeah, I can still remember you know tying up some egg sacks up you know. I had my desk upstairs, my tying desk, what turned into my fly tying desk eventually. I still can't believe my mom would, you know, allow me to have <laughs> egg sacks in the, you know, in the refrigerator next to, next to, next to worms them. too. Like Where night red, oh, yeah, red worms, yeah, yeah, yeah. salted you know, in there. Yeah. Jesus All that Christ. stuff. Our poor mothers. What yeah, they I know. Do. I know. They were so supportive. I know it just probably drove her nuts, but at the same time, you know, she was so supportive. 
It's amazing. It's truly amazing. And um, so, yeah, I caught mine. Um, my first Niagara fish was on New Year's Eve, and it was in, in the whirlpool at night, just mm-hmm. all dark. And oh, I, mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't have anything going on. I was thinking I, I was in my early teens and um, didn't want to go party with people on New Year's Eve. So I just hung out and, and fished really late. And this must have been probably 11 o'clock at night. I caught a, a big buck, red, dark buck. Yeah. On, on a pool That's in the, awesome. the whirlpool, um, down the whirlpool steps. And then I had to walk back up the steps and, uh, and you know, and my parents were like, what the hell are you doing yeah. on one o'clock in the morning yeah. fishing the lower Niagara area? But you know, back then we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have like, no. where's, where's my, where's my kids? It's like you fish to whenever you did yeah. whatever. And nobody accounted for, for what you did. And today it's like, you know, you can't even go outside without your cell phone with you. And back then I was, hanging out in the whirlpool by myself at midnight as a kid. I know. I know. How the hell did that happen? And um, boy, has the world changed so That's much. For sure. and, and I don't know if it's for the better, but I do know one thing we were, uh, we were liberated back then. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, I remember Niagara Falls when I, I, I grew up in Niagara Falls mm-hmm. before I moved to Grand Island. I didn't move to Grand Island until I think a sophomore in high school. Okay. And, um, I used to play by by Devil's Hole with my friends because we were not too far away from there. We were very close to to Three Sisters Island in the falls. And one of my friends, um, we were playing pirate ships by the shore, and he got on a wooden door and he went over Niagara Falls. Geez, when I was like ten or nine years old, and he was on the front cover of, no of Life magazine. On oh. the front cover of Life magazine was this kid terrified going over. Uh, the Horseshoe Falls, and uh, wow. I was playing with it was that whole group of kids, and uh, you know we we'd run around on our Stingray Schwinn Stingray bikes yeah. and hang out on you know Three Sisters Island and Goat Island, and and then drive home at eleven twelve o'clock. Yeah. Our dinner would be wrapped up in tinfoil by the by on the sink, and we'd eat it cold and go to bed. And we didn't want to stay home because you'd have to do chores, so yeah, you, or you or you get spanked by your your yeah. immigrant parents from Europe that uh, corporal punishment was right up there with uh, Hitler youth and uh, it was pretty brutal but um are you Kostic, are you Serbian or Croatian or Bosnian what, yeah, what it's is Cro- it? Croatian Croatian I thought it yeah. was yeah and uh, yeah so it was uh, it was a different time that so you when we go back to another question I'm gonna throw a lot of questions at you because my mind is all over the place and you got to dial me in but um you the writing did you have any writing skills when you were younger did just somebody come up to you and say geez rick that's really beautiful you should become a writer i mean your writing style is is very very eloquent and how, how did you get involved in and where did you get your first published published piece and what drove you to be a writer well i'll start with that question first i i just when i was young i did subscribe to like outdoor life and field and stream I was always, um, I think I was influenced by Ted Trueblood. I would read some of his stuff and, and just his experiences and things like that. And I just kind of remember saying, thinking to myself, that would be, you know, great way of life. That would be, uh, you know, just a, a really neat thing to do. So I, I do think that that kind of planted the bug that I at someday was going to be a writer. Um, when I went to college, I did take some creative writing classes and things of that nature. I, I wouldn't say I was trained in that, but I mean, certainly didn't hurt to, to um, you know, take some classes in, you know, in, in literature and things like that when I, I went to Canisius, Canisius College here in, in, in Buffalo. Yeah. And um, 
you know, really got a well-rounded education from that standpoint. So I did, did have some training, but it was very limited. Um, but I just had a desire to do it. I just kind of had a desire to do outdoor stuff and then write about my experiences. And I, again, I, I go back to, to, to some of that earlier influences when I read, you know, those outdoor magazines. Um, my first article was published, I think in, I'm going to say early, early nineties. I think it was in the, the American angler at the time it was American angler. And it was uh, an article about fly fishing for lake trout actually. Yep. Yep. I remember that article. And, and in the Niagara and in the, out on the lake on the Niagara bar fishing out of boats and things of that nature. So it was kind of at that time really, you know, it was different and it was new and, you know, it was a fun article, right? And that, that got me started. I think it was like 91 and um, I, I did a piece and it could have actually been in this, I don't know, but I did a piece on a Spring Creek midging and, uh, and then I saw Niagara Lake Trout and, and then I saw you, I think that's the first time I, um, yeah, I, yeah, it has to be. And it was, it really caught my attention because I knew there were lake trout out there and, and then you wrote, uh, then you started, well, we're going to talk about West River Publishing and then talk about um, but you, you were like a pioneer in that whole area of, of fishing those bait fish uh, off the Niagara bar. Um, I, I, you know, what, what, what got you going on that? Did somebody teach you about, Hey, let's go fish lake trout or how did this all come about? Um, certainly I had friends that were guides and, you know, just was getting good information from, you know, some, from good friends as to what some of the opportunities are out there. I, I think, again, I, I really felt like, I was in a position where something neat was happening around me and I kept on trying to find ways to take advantage of it all. You know, I, I heard about all the great fishing out on the lake and especially out on the bar. And, you know, we used to, we used to fish along the shorelines, um, you know, in the springtime for lake trout and salmon, um, both just drifting and casting. And we, we'd even do a little trolling with our flies. So I really, was just interested in trying to f- take advantage of every opportunity that was out there. And I, I kind of felt it as a challenge too, when I saw these opportunities that um, anglers and guides were taking advantage of with conventional gear. And it really challenged me to, to try to figure out how to do that with fly gear. And um, even though there was, it was much more limited in terms of lines and, and rods and things of that nature back in those days um, and materials for flies. Uh, it was still, you know, at the core of those types of, of that type of equipment was still available back then. And, um, you know, I, th- I think that was really it. It's just trying to match that up. And it was just always such a, a feeling of satisfaction when there would be some success. And there was a lot of failures for sure. I mean, there was a lot of, a lot of days where, you know, you would think, well, what, what am I doing here? And why, why am I really trying to do this? But uh, certainly on days when there was success, it would just be such a feeling of satisfaction that you figured something out and you know, figured out how to do it with the fly rod. Yeah. Um, you know, so let's go back to um, Oak Orchard and um, the fly shop. When, when did, so, I think I'm going to start first because my head is just spinning about there's so much to talk about with you. Um, so you, you, you know, um, 
Oak Orchard Fly Shop. What, what came first? West, West West River Publishing probably came first before the Fly Shop, or yeah, or did. they came about I, the same time. I think because uh, West River was, uh, you know, in conjunction with that with that first book, the tributary book, and I believe that was published in ninety one. I think, if I remember correctly, so that's when that that's when the West River established itself, and then the Fly Shop, um, Fly Shop actually began. We, we purchased it in ninety. Four or five, and it did start. You know, the, the the individual that started the shop, I think, started in '92. Jerry Senegal. Okay. And so we purchased it in '94, '95, and we were right up on the the banks or near the banks of the Oak Orchard Creek at that time. And um, we purchased this old building. Um, it was a it was a neat old building. It was a post office building or general store post office, uh, just just up the road from where the the shop originated, and um, really a, a neat old building. And um, uh, we we had some lodging in there and the shop downstairs, and it was a nice place to have an operation. Uh, then we eventually moved into to Buffalo. We had a, we actually had two seasonal shops. We had the seasonal seasonal operation up there on Oak Orchard, and then we had a seasonal operation down in Arcade for a while. Uh, and then we kind of brought everything together and moved it up into Williamsville. Yeah, yeah, it was it was quite. You had a really cool logo, and uh, <clears throat> it was really interesting to see. And and back then, I I think I fished Oak Orchard, but I actually I fished eighteen mile at Burt Dam. Oh, and Burt Dam was uh, was quite a yeah, crazy. Uh, Crazy redneck uh, Confederate flag type yeah. place where you didn't think you were in Western New York, and uh, and uh, I love my Southern brothers, man. But you, yeah. you guys came in there hard, and it was like um, coming to Burt Dam was like yeah. uh, going into like Mad Max yeah. Fury Road. It was like craziness. It was yeah, that's the belly of the beast, right? Of there. the of the belly of the beast, and I mean, I've seen a couple. Uh, so there's a guy on YouTube that keeps posting stuff from there, and it, and it shows like even during COVID and. Uh, uh, during warfare fishing, uh, where where everybody's fishing, actually, it was pretty impressive because everybody's keeping social distance, and some a lot of people were wearing masks during the twenty uh, night uh, twenty twenty when COVID hit. Yeah, and uh, it was still a war zone, man, and it was just like wow, and these and it, like multiple hookups and yeah. the craziness of, of that whole thing. So, you what what when you when you did you fall in love with Oak Orchard and, and the Lake Run Browns there, and how does that how did it all come about? Uh, I, well, I did. I, I think. Um, you know, back in those days, there were very few people fishing and, uh, you know, the Oak got such a good run of fish. Um, and it, it was where I started to expand the fly fishing part of the tributary fishing. And, you know, I think it was, um, you know, where I learned, taught myself a lot of lessons, you know, back in those days, you know, the, the general feeling was that steelhead and the lake run browns would need a fly you know you had to use you had to use eggs and you know they there's no way so i, I mean that was a great proving ground for you know what those fish would do and how they would react to flies and both first from a more of a dead drifting standpoint then moving more to a tight line standpoint then eventually to swinging for fish um with the number of fish there it was really just a a good opportunity to to try different methods different uh different flies different techniques and uh, really worked out well. And, and, you know, and back, like I said, back in those days, there just wasn't the, the crowds. 
and we we had a lot of water to ourselves. So I, it was a it was a fun place to fish back in those days, even though you know it's fairly limited. Yeah, there's a there's a there's a shot from the old oak right there actually, and you know, um, great great fishing right through the winter time. It usually stayed flowing all winter long. So there was there was a lot of good you know positive attributes about that fishery at that time. Look at this guy right here. You remember this guy right here, huh? Yeah. Look at that. That's Dash. And uh, it's uh, it's the guy on Oak Orchard, and uh, does, I don't see a lot of people there. No. You know, no. it's kind of it's kind of interesting. And uh, yeah, this was this magazine was 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 so great. And I, I I when I started Hollowed Waters, the first thing I thought about was, geez, I've, I've loved Tom Perro's stuff, and I think everybody back then was like, yeah. this was something new, and it was about the passion for steelhead and Atlantic salmon, and. Uh, you know, you were a big part of this whole thing. You were, you know, you were the Niagara Frontier guy. And uh, and then we had Ray Schmidt and then we had myself here in Michigan. Uh, these were great times. And um, let's talk a little bit about what, what, what did you think about when you started to see fish taking a fly uh, and they weren't supposed to take a fly and they weren't supposed to take spawn bags? How did you see that whole evolution happening? And were you really geeked when you caught your first steel out on a fly and the one maybe you tied? Oh, absolutely. You know, there, there's no question that, you know, this whole thing has been a progression um, and, you know, it continues to be so. And every time you hit that next milestone, absolutely excited about it. And, um, you know, I can what still... Why was it? Oh, I, I mean, I, you know, there's no question that you know, early on I was catching just on, you know, the very first fish in early 80s run glow bugs. I mean, that was my yeah. go-to back in those days. Yeah. Uh, so there's no question that that was uh, you know, where I started. And then, you know, kind of just continued to evolve from there. Then it was, you know, tying some small wet flies, like you mentioned the flea and the, you know, the, the one that, uh, that really, that I used a lot back in those days was a Framus, which is Framus. Oh yeah. The big- body and uh glow bug wing. But I mean, those, that's how it continued to step up, you know, and it, you know, it seems so, almost ridiculous now to think back about it it's just like well why you know why aren't you just using a spay fly back those days and and you know and and but nobody i mean just absolutely nobody was doing it and so the there was just this progression and i just had to do it step by step so that was the next step you know using a a wet fly that kind of uh you know had egg-like colors but wasn't exactly an egg any longer so now you kind of prove well you can get them on those and then you know from there it was just getting into some of those smaller wet flies that i tie like the catnip which is um you know an, an an orange fly just a small wet fly it was just kind of the kind of more of a traditional look step up from a framus and you know once you prove that worked um you know you kind of continued on from there yeah, you know, um, you know, you you had a beautiful piece in there called the evolution of the spay fly or new age spay flies, and it was your beautiful marabou ties. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that. And you did a lot of work on the Niagara River. You were you were big, you know, your 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 little laboratory it seemed like was the Niagara. You were always doing stuff on the Niagara. And um, um, you know, I'm going to just read a little bit from uh, from one of your piece introductions. This is from uh, your article in, in Wild Steelhead and Salmon, and it starts off, I'm feeling a bit chilly. My brother Jerry slurred. We better get going. Feeling chilled is a relative term. And our chattering teeth and lagging motor skills were clear signs that we had both passed through the stages hours ago of chill. In a way, it made sense. The delirium 
that often associated with the advanced stages of hypothermia just might explain why two grown men would stand thigh deep in a river for hours through a driving April rain. To us, the diagnosis was quite simple, a river full of steelhead. Look at that magic coming from you. Wasn't that kind of cool <laughs> stuff? Yeah, that's great. That's still, it's still the case now, you know, very little has changed. <laughs> nothing, nothing's changed and we're doing crazy things. Um, so let's, let's get back to, um, the, you know, w- when you were fishing back then, uh, it was, it was the running line gig. I think, um, you know, I, Oak Orchard probably had more ability to fish indicators. I mean, did we actually really do indicators back then? I don't think so. It was yeah, all like yeah, we, was we, bottom bouncing a lot. We were though. I mean, honestly, I did not do a lot of the, um, running line fishing. Um, you know, I, I, we, we were, uh, even on Oak, when we started dead drifting, it was just a lot of weight forward lines and indicators. You know, the indicators aren't what they back then were, you know, what they are today. They're not the, you know, round plastic, high riding things. And we used a lot of, uh, you know, they were like foam indicators and things of that back in those days. So, but, you know, we didn't, even on the Oak, we, myself and, you know, the other, you know, other uh, people that I fished with didn't do much of the the, the, the running line stuff. Yeah, you um, really didn't have to because your rivers, uh, those rivers were kind of sh- more shallower, weren't right. they? So yeah, yeah. We did a lot of the running line stuff because if you look at the Muskegon and the Manistee yeah. and stuff out here, they're pretty deep water and to get down in a and, lot of these and, pools. And have uh, fairly uh, uh, fast currents and, you know, and trying to get down into slots and things like that. And we, yeah, we didn't have that as much. Um even on the even on the Niagara, and you, like you said, it, it was part of my uh, definitely part of my lab. And, and one of the things that that worked well down there, well, one of the one of the key attributes again after I started really learning the behavior of those fish, is the you know, fish in the Niagara, particularly when the water temperatures up, are pretty aggressive. You know, and coming into that to that river, I don't think a lot of those fish ever really kind of don't stop feeding. I mean, there's a lot of bait in the river and I think they continue to, you know, kind of treat the the whole river as it's, you know, somewhat of an estuary really, even as they come up it. Um, you know, I think that changes a bit, uh, you know, during the winter time as they get closer to, you know, spawning and whatnot. But when they come in the fall, you know, there, there's a lot of salmon eggs, they key on those for a while. And then after the, the salmon and lake trout are done spawning, you know, they really, really seem to, to attack bait. So that was a, a really a great, as you mentioned, you know, lab for, you know, swinging flies because those fish were so aggressive. So I learned a lot about swinging down there and, you know, was able to take a lot of what I learned. I mean, you know, you just get some amazing grabs and pulls down there on a, either on a tight line or a swung fly. Uh, and again, was able to take that and apply it to different places as well. So, um, yeah, you know, and you did a lot of white patterns. I remember seeing mm-hmm. a white marabou uh, spay um, with a little bit of pink in it, and and uh, it was a pretty cool article because we were really bridging from from just going nymphing and eggs to you know you you were kindly constantly probing, and that's one thing mm-hmm. that I always loved about uh, your stuff, where you were always pushing the envelope to the next level, and that's today you're still doing the still doing it and. Uh, uh, it's, it's, it's a, it's an evolution. Revolution is basically what happened. I mean, we were, you know, uh, you know, your, your stuff on the steelhead alley. So you, you took that to the next level and we want to talk about the cataragas and, um, but you know, the, the, the sink tip lines, um, 
you know, you have Jim Teeny, and I know you did a lot with Jim Teeny. Let's, I think you did a couple of clinics with Jim Teeny out in the, on the Steelhead Alley and his sinking lines. And then, you know, Kevin Feenster here on this river started playing with his sinking lines and we started getting into streamers. And then the streamer thing, I think basically took into the swinging thing. And it was sort of like a, uh, one tugging at the other. What was your experience with, with, with sinking lines and Jim Teeny and doing that stuff on the Steelhead Alley? And where did you go from there? You know, I think as we, so, you know, initially our rigs, even as we were swinging flies, you know, a lot of uh, the initial approach was with floating lines and either weighted flies or adding some weight to the leader. But in time, we knew that that had to change. It just wasn't that much fun casting heavy weight on the, on the leader and that there was, there had to be other options. And even though back in those days, and when you look at all the, the available tips and poly leaders and things like that today, I mean, they just, that didn't exist back then. And we had various different ways, but the, the, the one material we had that we were playing around with was the old Cortland LC 13. And we would make, um, tips out of that and attach those to the front ends of our running lines. So we were starting to play around with that. Then I believe Airflow came out with these tungsten impregnated leaders. And they were they're kind of your the, the the I guess probably the first poly leaders. But they weren't coated on the outside. They just kind of had they were kind of rough and I don't know they can't can't remember exactly how they were, but they were almost like a um yeah, I don't know they were like the material itself, I, I forget exactly how it was. It was just, it was impregnated with, with, with tungsten and they sunk really well. And that was, that kind of started changing the game. We were using those quite a bit, you know, on the front end of a, of a floating line. So when we were swinging, this is probably going to be early to mid nineties, I would say something like that, still using single-handed rods, but using those leaders. And then, yeah, I think the, the teeny line started blending in at that point as well. We were definitely using the teeny lines on the big water like any of that, any of that stuff out in, on the lake, um, uh, on the, on the bar and in the lake, you know, both for lake trout and, and salmon out there. And then, uh, on the Niagara river and then Lake Erie for bass, uh, we were using teeny lines, you know, for that type of stuff. But a lot of the, you know, a lot of the, the trout and steelhead or the, the steelhead stuff in the lake runs, um, you know, we were making our own tips or we were using these, uh, you know, those early airflow leaders. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was uh, Teeny 300, and then, mm-hmm. you know, the, it was just so much stuff that, you know, I remember I spent so much time playing with his lines. And, that, and back mm-hmm. then, it was just all about figuring out what, how, the, your, how that's going to work for you. And, mm-hmm. you know, I remember the old Jim Teeny videos, you know, if you spot them, you got them. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, all his, uh, the Teeny Nymph, which I never really had much luck with a Teeny Nymph because it just seemed so simple. But I think the idea was like the old concept of an old wet fly hook to penetrate as quick as possible, mm-hmm. get that fly, get that fly in front of the fish's trigger point and make them take that damn thing. Cause if you spot them, you got them. Yep. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot of, you know, there's a whole, there's, you could write volumes of, of what Great Lake steelheading is about. And I had that long talk with Tom Larimer, um, by the way, who's, uh, whose podcast just came out this morning. Um, and, um, 
we spent a couple hours talking about, you know, uh, the, the, the dark side of steelheading, you know, it's lining, it's a flossing as you're sticking that fly in that fish's mouth and he's eventually going to take that fly and the mouth moves. And there, you know, you could write a book. I mm-hmm. think we could write a book about that whole concept of steelheading and what we were taught to think because we really went from, Treble hooks with a piece of weight on the bottom is the only way you're going to catch migratory salmonids. So I remember standing at the mouth of Catara, um, no, it was Barcelona, New York, which is, um, Chautauqua Creek. Yep. Chautauqua. And I was standing at the mouth back at, I was probably, you know, eight, nine years old. I can't remember. And, you know, we had crickets and you're supposed to snag when these salmon came in, these coals came in. They're not taking anything. They're, you, yes. the only way you do it is you, you listen to Bill Hiltz and the Niagara. Uh, evening uh, in the Niagara Gazette, and he says you got to get these crickets, and you got to go there, and, and you snag these fish, and, and you know every once in a while you get a silver rainbow in the mix, yeah. or you get something else in the mix, or a brown trout, and that was the way you do it. And so we we go from that transition to then we go into to, to the egg patterns, and which imitate the spawn bags. And I mean, this is this is major league stuff here. We you know you could really write the evolution yeah. is going to be history, and it is history, and we're talking about big history right now. And then you're, you're experimenting with sinking. And a lot of the experimentation with sinking tips was we, there was no set method. And you have to exp- spend 90% of your time figuring out what is going to work, sort of like what, what Ward did and, and, and those guys on the West Coast when yep. they were splicing lines and a whole bunch of other guys and Cook and Jim Vincent and, and Simon Gosworth, who we're going to have on our program, mm-hmm. uh, you know, talking about that whole era, it was all about experimentation and it was about what is going to work. And nobody had a say, well, I think if you put 400, you should knock it up to 500 grits or you should knock it down to, right. you know, six. You know, it was a grain and we're, we got a little better today dialing that in because things are more uh, once we, 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 we had the certification of, of what grains were and how they matched with the rods. Up until then, it was just hit or miss. Yep. And and when we started spay fishing, um, it was uh, you know accelerator and wind cutter and and how's this going to work with my gig? Yep. And eighty percent of the time, you weren't fishing; you were figuring out how to use your gear. And yeah. so we're going to talk a little bit about what's the difference between once we get into spay. We're going to talk about the difference between spay and spay fishing. Um, but um, we're going to take a little break here with with Rick Custich. We're talking everything. Uh, the evolution of, of Great Lakes steelheading. And it's, this is really fascinating stuff. Stuff. Hope you enjoy it. We're going to be back in a little bit and uh, we'll see you soon. I can't say enough good things about G. Loomis rods. They're made out in Washington State for over 30 years. And their latest NRX series are absolute bombs. Steve Rajeff uh, designed these Apex Beasts that are just amazing. Uh, their, their new uh, Nano Silka um, resin system uh, is so amazing that it makes them so much lighter and they could cast with so much more power throughout the whole rod. Um, the lightness and, and the power generates are so much more important for the line speed. And, and especially if you're doing Scandi tapers, underhand casting with sinking heads, um, deep dredging skagits um, with, with heavier um, weighted intruders. Um, they do it pretty much all. And even with floating lines, like in long belly, uh, traditional spay casting, uh, the stamina for these rods and the long anchors 
And this traditional styling is amazing. Um, they're very rich looking, and I highly recommend them, as does my friend Tom Larimer, their representative out on the West Coast. So ask for G. Loomis rods when you go to your fly shop or visit them online at G. Loomis, but you won't be disappointed. Um, their, their, their whole technology is taking off, and it's just simply amazing. If you're a serious spay fisherman and a swinger, uh, you're going to really enjoy these rods. Most of you think of Orvis as a trout rod and a real company. Uh, I've known them for many decades, and I had my first Orvis rod, graphite rod, when I was a teenager, using up my hard-earned paper route money uh, to to buy one. Um, They have been known so much for what they do in the trout world, and their stuff is outstanding, made in Vermont uh, since the, the days fly fishing really started in this country. And um, but but they've gotten serious with their spay uh, activity. And lately, um, uh, Combs uh, and the rod designers um, got together and say, we're going to be taken seriously in this market. And they came up with the Orvis Mission uh, two handed series. Uh, I was blown away when I got my first Orvis two hander and I took it to uh, to Iceland. And I was just just overwhelmed by how well it competed with the other rods that I had with me, the Sages, the G. Loomis's, the Berkheimers. Um, they put in some serious technology in these rods. Uh, the beauty of them, the handles, the the grips, the 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 whole the whole package is just simply amazing. And um, they are now a force to be reckoned with in the spay market. And you should definitely look at the Mission Series next time you're going to purchase the rods. They're 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 very affordable and they're beautiful in the hand and they feel just as good as the top line spay rod you could possibly imagine. So visit Orvis, go to your Orvis dealer, to your fly shop that carries Orvis and ask for the Orvis mission. Give it a test run and look at it and you will be simply amazed how serious Orvis has come into this very competitive spay rod two-handed market. Welcome back to Hollow Waters Podcast. We are with uh, the uh, the guru, the founder of Great Lakes Modern Steelheading, and um, Rick Kustich. And we're having some great talks about the old days and you know reliving history and and uh, so many steelheaders today uh, just think this just came about the day they bought their rod and reel. But you know this, our whole laboratory has been going on for 25, 30 years and intensely in the in the Great Lakes and. Uh, we're having a hell of a lot of, I'm having a great time. And I'm sure Rick is talking about this stuff because it's, it's bringing so much back, but the romance that, you know, there, there's always the romantic part. And I think what, um, what we've, we've gotten ingrained to today is the fact that, you know, keep it technical, keep it to the point, keep it this, keep that. And, you know, our publishers keep telling us that. And sometimes they rob us the pleasure of, of that, that initial, passion that 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 Hemingway-esque look into the world and I'm just going to read a beautiful quote that Rick wrote back uh, in Wild Steelhead and Salmon in, in the spring article for Steelheading he says the pursuit of spring steelhead seems to represent a passage possibly even a celebration we are relieved of the listless feelings ingrained by winter's strange hold the days now grow longer and there is hope and enthusiasm things are alive 
The rivers look full and healthy. We are drawn by their magnetism. Now look at those beautiful words back then. And, you know, we were probably walking around with flowers in our hair back then and, and in love and all kinds of stuff. But, you know, the bottom line is that's beautiful stuff. And, and this sport, if you look back at all the great books and, and all this stuff. And my, my big fan was, I was a big fan of Bill McMillan and dryline steelheading and Trey Combs's book and, and then Dak, who we're going to have on our program, also the passion. And you spend time with Dak, and I think he slept over at your house. He said mm-hmm. one thing one yeah. time. And you know, this is this is massive stuff. And and this stuff is, you know, guys, if you're a steelheader, and if you don't understand how we got here to this where we're at today, and 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 this is all part of the building block of what's happening. And it was uh, it was the passion, it was the toil, it was the experimentation, it was dealing with icy roads and I had to get out to the CAD no matter if there's three feet of snow and, and Rick's still crazy enough to live. Um, are you, are you still living on Grand Island or did you? I actually, we, we live out in Amherst now. Got okay. So you got, so yeah. So when you live there, you know, I got to go steelhead fishing and I don't care if the New York state Thruway is closed and, right. and you still deal with that all the time. Yeah. But these are the things that, that pushed us to that Level of I gotta get my I gotta get my fix I gotta get my addiction I gotta get my tug is the drug and the dope and um you know so once you got let's go back to again I'm gonna jump all over the place because there's so much to talk with you about Rick but when you wet your hands on your first two handed experience when the hell was was that I knew mine my first two handed experience was when I was living in Poland. Um, it's kind of weird. That's whole stories uh, in my Nexus book, but mm-hmm. I actually grew up in Niagara Falls, New York, but then we went back to Poland. I lived there for on a farm for, mm-hmm. for a brief period of time. And, um, my uncle had a hardy, uh, 15 foot, 11 weight, hardy bamboo rod that weighed about as much as a Volkswagen. And he was, he would hold the rod and I had my hands underneath it. And we hooked a salmon and on the Viepsha river that went through our farm and it broke off on a green Highlander. But that was the moment I learned about a two handed rod. And it, it was like something, wow, what the hell is this all about? When was your magic moment, Rick, that you had your two handed rod in your hand and you start playing with it and you start saying, Hey, this is for Rick Custich. Well, I'll tell you, it, the first rod I had was 15 foot and I think it was a nine ten weight. It was an old St. Croix. I wish, I wish I had it. I don't remember exactly where, that got left behind, but I, w- I really wish I had it. Um, and I took that to the Niagara and probably had an old double taper line. And I knew right away that it was what I, that the two handed rod was what I needed and that it was going to really work and, you know, kind of change how I approached the sport and, you know, was going to, even at that time, I figured it was going to kind of define, you know, what the future was going to look like. But I also knew that that rod and line was absolutely wrong for what I wanted to do at that time. Um, it was too big. It was too clunky. It was, you know, designed to cover big water more up in the up in the water column, and we were looking to cover smaller water and and you know generally a little bit more down in the water column. So I knew that there was, that was the starting point. I knew there had to be some major changes to that, that are, you know, that equipment before it was really going to uh, be what I needed to fish the Great Lakes. So that, that's kind of started that process. And that was the, the, the initiation into it. 
but it also was the time where I knew that it was that just everything wasn't right about it either. If that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. And, um, did you, are you, are you self, were you self-taught? Did you take schools? How did you, you know, what was, what was your whole, yeah, it was pretty much self-taught. I think at that time, the, the book we were, we were looking at was uh, the Hugh Falkus, I believe salmon fishing. I think it's the title of that. I still have that book around. So that was really the, there wasn't a lot out there at that time. Um, And then not too long after that, um, I believe Jim Vincent put out a, uh, put out a, um, a DVD that might've been in the late nineties or something like that. And then I, that, that helped as well um, with my, but it's all self-taught and then eventually Simon's book, you know, so it's really just been a progression all along, always getting better. And still to this day, I still am trying to improve and trying to do different stuff. So been a progression, Um, you know, really what, what came about though is knowing that we needed equipment that, would match the rivers in one way or another, you know, whether it is, it was, you know, basically shorter lines, shorter rods, even back then, we, you know, we recognized that the need for that. Um, and I had a connection with Jerry Seam at Sage Rods at the time, actually met him through, uh, through my brother, brother, Jerry, Jerry Seam was a rod designer at Winston for a number of years. And, um, you know, I, I called Jerry and started just discussing with him, you know, my conundrum that I really wanted to get into two-handed fishing. And it really seemed like it was the, the right thing for our steelhead fishing. And at the same time, it just didn't seem like the equipment existed for it. So we had some really good conversations back in those days. And, and the one thing about Jerry, and you, you can probably relate to this, Matt, but back in that time frame, and again, for some of the younger listeners that might not be able to relate to this, but the Great Lakes fishery just wasn't regarded very well, um, you know, I, from a national standpoint, and even with a lot of the manufacturers. I mean, you know, as you alluded to, the the snagging and overcrowding of, of some of the rivers kind of had given it a bad rap. And uh, that kind of carried over into the industry so that, you know, some of the rod, man, you know, a lot of the manufacturers just didn't consider the, the Great Lakes. It was just there wasn't a lot of fly fishermen. They didn't really see it as something as a serious market. Um, but the thing about Jerry Seam is, you know, he really, he was one, he, he's the kind of guy that really looks at opportunities and looks at fisheries from a, you know, a fresh perspective. And he saw what, what, especially once we started having conversations, what the possibilities were, you know, on on the Great Lakes. So we worked, you know, I, he was working on some things already, but, um, I helped to give him some ideas on some shorter rods. And one he produced was an 11 foot three inch eight weight that I still have. And, um, I think I got that rod in around 97. I looked at actually just to try to get my dates right. I looked back into my log and I, I, I saw where I was fishing. I believe that rod in 1997, definitely by 1998 and was using it pretty consistently after that. You know, I I'm pretty much everywhere I was fishing, uh, you know, with, as I became comfortable with it, um, you know, as I became comfortable with those rivers. So on the CAD, on the Niagara, uh, and some of the other, you know, a couple of the other spots on, on Steelhead Alley, I was using that rod almost exclusively. And then the, the problem was there was no lines to, to fit on those rods or there was no, there was no shorter head line. So what I was using was a old Cortland pike taper 
So he really had an exaggerated weight forward. And I think it was a 10 weight pipe taper, you know, similar to what, you know, the design of a Skagit had now, you know, it was just yeah. weight forward. It would cast, uh, you know, a, you could put a sinking leader on the front of that, could have a weighted fly on it. So that was my go-to rig for a number of years. Um, was that with, was this, was this sage rod, um, with a, um, with the pike taper and sinking leaders and sometimes with a, you know, floating leader and weighted fly. Yeah. 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 It's amazing what, what we did and what we went through. We're going to, uh, we're going to take another quick break here and we're going to come back with a, with a question from one of our listeners. We are Rick uh, with uh, Rick Kustich and we are talking the evolution of Great Lakes uh, steelheading. We'll be right back. Able Reels have been the pinnacle of reel technology for for decades now. Since Steve Abel, aerospace engineer, started the company in California, their technology and their manufacturing, the drag systems are simply impeccable. Um, They work to perfection and everything they do is just a piece of art, including their art design on their reel systems. Uh, They're beautiful artists that they have in these series of all the different trout, salmon, steelhead, saltwater fish, uh, utilizing technology with beauty and incorporating designs by Derek DeYoung, Larco, Underwood, other people are simply the state of the art. What's so cool is when you take a picture of a fish, like I often do with Atlantic salmon and brown trout and hold my reels up against them, it's just beauty in the hand and beauty in the fish. Uh, and it just totally relates to the whole experience of why we fly fish and why we love what we're doing. Um, so please look at Able Reels next time you're looking at a large arbor reel and, and look at the difference and look at the quality, the workmanship. Another USA-made company that gives each reel a hand touch and their boutique-made reels, especially the paintings. If you opt for the designs, which can be pricey, but if you're looking for that special gift for someone or you're trying to treat yourself, Able Reels are the way to go. Contact Jeff Patterson and Able, and you will never be disappointed in an Able product. I've known Marcos at Hairline for a long time since he had his fly shop in Glen Allen in Chicago suburbs, the fly-in field. Marcos was a serious, serious fly-tying guru and he had every material known to mankind imported from all over the place. Marcos has since gone to Hairline and has been there for decades now, and he's done such an amazing job of of taking that company and taking it to the upper limit of having a one-stop place where you get the ultimate quality in hooks and materials and feathers and tinsels and designs and tubes. They pretty much have everything for the trout, the salmon, the steelhead fly fisher, the warm water fly fisher, but really they've come into their own, especially in the spay area with the RX hooks, the Daiichi, Alec Jackson hooks, all the intruder wires and materials by Greg Senyo um, and importing some of the best products possible. Um, You won't go wrong by going to Hairline and seeing the product offering they have. They really have pretty much everything. And, and even in the tube section, the HMH tubing and stuff like that, they have gone to the next level. So I highly encourage you to shop at Hairline. Tell Marcos I said hi. 
and it is truly one of the best um, all-around places to go for looking for that special material that you're in the market for. We are back with Rick Kustich talking the evolution of Great Lakes steel and modern Great Lakes steel adding. And we're going to take a question right now from um, one of the one of our uh, subscribers and listeners. And thanks so much for all you people for all the great input you've been giving us. And uh, this is uh, this is a, a, a two way uh, dialogue. We need all the input coming from everyone that's part of this whole passion thing. And uh, uh, we have Megan from Sedgwick, New York, and she writes, "Hey guys." I'm new to space swinging, being a former steelhead nympher only. I fished the Salmon River mostly above Pineville and down through Schoolhouse to the Cove and occasionally in Douglaston. I fish often in the most brutal winter days when I could get out. I love the space swing game and I am getting good at it, but lose confidence, get down on myself and have a tough time keeping the faith when I see nymphing guys hooking fish as I struggle. Any tips for a winter steelhead around the salmon still learning the spay gig? Rick, I'm going to throw that to you. Well, the first, yeah, the first, yeah, I, I think you mentioned though the one thing, just losing confidence. I, I think that is something that we deal with, and especially when you do, you know, when the water's cold and you see nymphers or you know center pinners catching fish, um, it, it can be a bit discouraging. I, I think the key is keeping the faith and. Um, you know, really just in terms of knowing that that one fish is, you know, that the excitement of landing that one fish is worth, you know, 10 or 15 caught on, uh, you know, on dead drifting or on a pin and, um, you know, just really keep an eye on the prize. I think that's part of it. The, the other part though, is, you know, being able to continue to fish with confidence. And I think that comes somewhat with experience. It comes somewhat with, you know, basing it on your past success um one thing that i certainly recommend is that you you settle in on a on a couple of fly patterns um that you either have confidence in or can you get some ideas from you know some from people that that you fish with that you can really have confidence in you know my i you know when and we'll probably talk about it at you know at some other point during this um you know during the podcast but I just really have great confidence in my Marabou Spay type flies. They've worked for me for 20 years. I mean, there's continues to be such great advancements in, in materials and whatnot, great ties out there. But when it comes down to it, I still catch a lot of fish on those flies. Very simple, you know, Marabou tubes, you know, black and purple has been a great color for me. White's been a great color over on the salmon. So settle in on a couple of flies. Don't get caught in that situation where you're always changing flies and things of that nature. It just wastes time and then really just, uh, you know, kind of adds to the questions in your mind. Um, and then just make sure that that fly is, you know, kind of fishing where you want it to. If you're fishing in the in the winter time frame, colder water, you want to fish that fly, down, you know, certainly down towards the bottom of the water column. So just make sure that, uh, you know, that, that, you know, you feel as though you got that fly down into that. And I don't like scraping the bottom. I don't like losing a lot of flies, but I do want to make sure that um, I'm consistently getting it down there and, um, you know, making adjustments for the pools, making adjustments for water flow. So I, I think there is just a certain element of 
you know, busting through on this situation where you just have to stay committed. Don't think in terms of, you know, I'm going to go grab the, the, the nymph rod if, you know, at, at lunchtime, if I haven't hooked a fish, um, you just kind of got to bust through and, you know, pay your dues and, and get some experience. And, you know, once you, once you start getting some, um, you know, some good positive feedback that all builds quickly and, uh, you know, you'll, you'll hook a fish in a spot and you just try to understand what you were doing right in those situations and, and try to build off of that. But, you know, just build in, just, just stay in the course is really the key. It's, it's part of steelheading. I mean, it really is, is the, you know, just working through the areas when, or the times where it seems kind of dark. Yeah. Yeah. It's so important. I think confidence and, and, and it's the, it's the, uh, commitment. You make a commitment, you Mm -hmm. become a Jedi when you, when you devote yourself Mm -hmm. to, to swinging and no matter what's going on, no matter the, the, the people screaming, I got another one. You, you stay the course because you're committed to the, to the concept of swinging is, is a way that, 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 that steelhead were meant to take your fly. They were meant to chase it. Everything is meant to be in the chase. And that's, you know, go dates back to 1490s when Dom Giuliani was swinging wet flies and catching Atlantic salmon and brown trout on the Avon river. It's, it's all about that swing. And if it, it you know, it, 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 how did the song go? If it ain't got that swing, uh, it, it, it's the jazz song. Uh, it, it basically, you know, you, you, you have to put yourself into the zone, but also you have to fish intelligently and you have to fish steelhead fish uh in terms of you have to think like a trout you have to fish at the right times and we're going to talk about bite windows but you know i just had a recent friend um that was up on the salmon river and and he fished really hard for a couple days and was you know four or five below in the morning and stuff like that and you know and 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 he said i'm not giving up and of course it's the end of the day it's that warm part of the day where the temperature goes up one or degree you start seeing a few midges hatch things start calming down people start slamming car doors and trunks and going home and then bingo he got his hook up and he never get a hook up and it was 33 34 degree waters ice cubes bergs coming down the river and bingo he got a big male that thought it was snag at first and, and it hit his fly. And, um, you know, he thought he was hooked up on the bottom and then the thing went ballistic. And yeah, th- yeah. that's, you know, you're, it's confidence, but it's patience and it's endurance and it's an endurance test. And that's what the whole game is all about. And, um, and you know, so y- it's not big numbers. And if you want big numbers, sometimes you have to go nymphing or you fish eggs or something like that. But it's the quality aspect of it that, that Rick has been writing about and everybody in that space swimming world is, is the quality and the fish is so beautiful and it's come so long to come to, to meet you and it deserves the best of, of you as a sportsman and the best that we could give it. But let's talk to like, let's talk about the steelhead alley and, and, and the days of 30 to 50 hookups. And, um, let's talk about those days and how, how that was so, so different from what today is all about. And then, you know, now people, guides are swinging on the steelhead alley. Everybody's, you know, you know, go into that rig where before it was, you know, sucker spawn and, and blood dots and, um, uh, dot flies and all that stuff. And, um, you know, talk a little bit about those numbers and where you guys are at today. And we're going to talk, I want to get into after that, get into talking about the Cataraugus because that's dear to my heart. I caught my first steelhead right on the New York state through a bridge when my dad dropped me off in a snowstorm and, 
what where 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 does Steelhead Alley and where did the name come from? And and I think you were instrumental in it. You were like one of the few were the founding father of that whole Steelhead Alley. Actually, uh, the the yeah, the Steelhead Alley the name came from uh, an article that that I wrote in uh, Fly Fisherman. Yeah, yeah. And, um, so we we I you know I had focused on on uh, you know a handful of rivers, and even at that time, I really the the focus of that article was on swinging flies. And, um, I remember talking to John Randolph and I, you know, he liked the article and whatnot. He was going to publish it. Didn't really have a title for it, a good title. So we kind of came up, I will have to say, we kind of, kind of came up with that name together. And that was the title of the, uh, the, the, the article and it kind of stuck ever, ever since then. So, um, so that's really where it came from in terms of, you know, how it, you know, what it was like back in those days. Again, I, I went and looked at back at some of my logs. I, I was looking at some slides the other day. I was just going back and uh, trying to pick out a couple slides for a writing project I got going on right now. And uh, it, it appears that back in 2002 was just an unbelievable year. Cause I just can't believe the the number of beautiful fish that we uh, caught that year and just the beautiful yep. slides that exist. Same here, that. same year. Yeah. So, I mean, that was right in the heart of it. I, but even, you know, I did, going back, you know, and again, I, I wanted to try to get my timeline right. So I looked at my log and really starting around 98. So it seemed like from 98 through about 2003, um, the, those numbers just peaked and, you, you know, we'll never see a fishery or anything like that again. I don't think, I mean, it was just, uh, a, a perfect combination of, of fish survivals and, uh, available bait in the, in the lake and all up and down that whole, you know, the whole steelhead alley, particularly in New York state and in Pennsylvania, a little bit in Ohio, um, the runs were just, you know, phenomenal. So, I mean, in terms of the ability to, really hone in on swinging a fly two-handed I you know I was right in the middle of two-handed rods at that time I was you know fully committed to it um but the ability to just have numerous fish and numerous hookups there during the day that really was where I really honed in you know the the, the skills in terms of uh you know spay fishing and, and swing a fly for sure yeah, and and so where where uh, the Cataraugus, the Cataraugus has gone through so much from the days of of uh, you know put a sucker spawn and catch you know thirty steelhead in a day in the valley and and I remember uh, I was at Orvis Buffalo one time and and uh, was talking to the guys there and you know we had a good day we uh, we had hooked twenty eight and landed twenty six on sucker spawn and um, these are sucker spawn flies and. Uh, uh, you know, those days, and, and where is the cat today? Uh, I know you guys are talking, or maybe it's already started, this removing the Springville Dam. What is the natural reproduction? Because you, you, in your articles for Fly Fishermen and, and uh, Wild Steelhead, you were always the one pioneering the, the Wild Steelhead on the Cataraugus with Cold Creek, uh, Cold Brook, or, or um, uh, oh, correct me, uh, there's, uh, what's the other brook? Owner and Clear. Spooner Clear Creek, yeah. And I, I fished Clear Creek uh and I found rainbows back when way, way back. And those we we didn't know they were steel, they were rainbows and um Clear Creek and Spooner, yeah. And your your writings were always, you know. We, this thing could be so amazing and from a wild seal standpoint. And, and then, you know, I, I, my impression is that the Cataraugus fell on some hard times and, and, and how, where, how did those hard times come about from those glory days of big numbers to, to leaner times? 
which everybody seems to be going through throughout the Great Lakes system from the salmon all the way up to Lake Superior. Um, a lot of it's climate change driven, a lot of it's droughts and floods and up and down weather and that we're having. And, but how, how did, um, it go from those days to, to, to a lull period and where is the Cataraugus today? How do you envision the whole system? Well, I, I think the, you know, the, the lull kind of occurred there in, you know, the mid 2000s. Um, and I, I think that could be attributed to, um, yeah, there was some reduction in numbers. There was clearly a reduction in the quality of the fish that, you know, were being stocked. Um, and, and the, and the way that, you know, the methods that were being used in terms of the stocking. So I think the, the DEC, the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation has, you know, looked at those approaches and have improved upon them again. Um, but there is this element of wild fish in the, in the Cataraugus. And, you know, it's, it's hard to get a real good. And I, so I do think there was some years there where the, the wild numbers had dipped too. And that was more from you know, natural causes and, and things of that nature. Possibly though, as um, you know, there, that there were the survival rates of the, uh, the hatchery fish were down that, you know, some of those, the wild smolts took a took a beating as they were leaving the 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 cat from um, you know walleye and other predators too because there wasn't as about much available you know bait in the system at the time. But anyways, um, I I think that you know the wild numbers have since then rebounded. I think they've say, stayed fairly steady over the last fifteen years. Hard to really get a full assessment of what that means but i think in any given year it does appear that you know wild fish make up 20 to 30 percent of the run um i fish on the upper end of the river quite a bit and it's not uncommon to you know and that's where there is more successful spawning tributaries not as many hatchery fish get up into the, the upper end of the river but i would say there's years where maybe one out of every two fish that you catch has an appearance anyways of being a wild fish um, so I do think that the, the wild numbers are, are good. Um, where the river is today, you know, I, I think it's not in a bad place. Uh, it's nowhere near the numbers that we saw back in, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, but I'm not sure that that's always a bad thing. Uh, you know, I think that, you know, today you can go out and expect to hook, you know, even swinging three, four fish on a, you know, on a, on a decent day, you know, some days even a little bit more, some days a little That's less. Right. Um, but I think it's providing a good opportunity for quality steelhead fishing. I do think if the numbers were back, you know, as they were way back in the old days, um, that there would be probably inundated with anglers. I think the, the current catch rates do seem to um, spread out the angling pressure a bit. And really create a, I, I think, more of a consistent and enjoyable fishery than even when it was crazy numbers. So I think the crazy numbers would really attract almost too many people to the point where it would diminish the experience at this point. So yeah, and a darker crowd too, and just you know yeah. the days of uh, hens laying on the bank stripped for their eggs, mm-hmm. and the days of you know just just poor human behavior that mm-hmm. we're so, you know, always, uh, 
having to deal with uh, when it comes to big fish and the and the agony and the ecstasy of big fish. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just the, the dark side of this thing. You're absolutely right, and and that you know that's still a very healthy fishery. But what about the the, the, the Springville thing and and how's that going and where is it at and all that? You know, that was so that was moving along fairly well. So the, there is a dam in Springville that that uh, cuts off the upper access to the to the Cataraugus. It's about, I guess, 38 to 40 miles from the, the, the lake. So, I mean, there's a, a lot of water to fish. Um, but above there would be some real high quality water for natural reproduction. And I can only imagine the wild steelhead that would be produced on that upper river if they had access to it. The plan was to lower a piece of the dam, kind of notch a piece out and um, add a small fish ladder to allow fish to passage up there. Um, it was going along real well. And from my understanding, it was just pretty much they were ready to, to start the project. Uh, COVID came up. And then I guess there's also some now more concern about some of the siltation behind the dam and that there might be some more removal work that would be needed that um, bef- that, that wasn't anticipated earlier on. So I do feel as though right now it's kind of in a holding pattern. And um, I guess the, the removal work of that silt, silt is would be a fairly expensive project. And I think they're in the process of trying to figure out how to fund that. So unfortunately, it seems to be on hold right now. Um, so I mean, it, it would get, like I said, it would, it would create more natural reproduction at the same time to open up. You know, the, the the water above there, there would still be some really good steelhead water there too. So it would open more more water up for fishing. There's some pretty good public access to that water as well. So we'll see what happens. Um, you know, I, I was I was hopeful that uh, you know it would really create. I mean, at some at some point, it could create an entire wild fishery. Yeah. Uh, you know, that wouldn't need to be stacked. Well, we'll see what happens. Yeah. Um, let's, let's dial back into uh, like steelhead bite windows and, you know, the, the, you know, everybody wants to know when to catch a steelhead. You know, there's uh, I, when I talked to Tom Larimer on the last podcast and we talked a lot about the deschutes and when that sun comes up over the mountain at about 10, 11 o'clock in the morning, there was always this crazy bite and there was always a bite at dark and, and there's always a bite in the morning, you know, how, how do you, how do you view your, your whole approach when you're going to swing flies tomorrow on the Cataraugus, uh, uh, in the fall, let's talk about, you know, the fall and then let's talk about winter. Um, you know, what, what is your whole game plan? Do you, what, do you move around a lot? Do you concentrate on buckets and pools that, that always produce for you? Uh, do you, do you poke around tertiary water? Let's talk about, you know, how Rick approaches the stream and looks for those bite windows and where you prod for those bite windows. What's your whole philosophy on that? Yeah, just so many, you know, so many factors that go into, on a daily basis, things that, you know, I think we can understand as anglers and other factors that, you know, we probably will never fully understand. Um, only the fish will, will understand. But um, I think the the areas that w- we can control and we can understand, I, I mean, I think I try to use those and put those to, to, to my advantage. Uh, water temperature is always a, a key um, factor for me. And especially when you get dramatic decreases in water temperature overnight. Um, I always find that to be a, a deterrent the next morning for, for swinging flies. But let me, let me just start with in terms of bite windows and kind of going through the day. 
um, unless there's been a, an extreme cold weather event overnight, an extreme cold front, I don't think it ever hurts to be the first person through a pool in the morning. You know, fish tend to be, they've set up, they're comfortable. A lot of times they're in very accessible lies. You know, they might be in fairly shallow water on the inside of a pool. I mean, anytime I fish, fish a pool for the first time in the morning, I make sure I don't wade too deep. So I don't think you can ever really go wrong trying to catch that first bite. And even though as I get older, my, my desire to get up it, you know, while it's still dark and get, you know, race and get to the river to beat anybody has, has kind of waned. Um, but I still do feel as though that's uh, especially when I have clients, you know, try to get to your best water and try to be the first person through it. Um, from that standpoint, I do feel as though generally as water warms um, during the course of the day, that that tends to increase the, you know, I think the uh, opportunities and the ability for, or, you know, just the, the ability for the fish to, to want to chase. Um, so a lot of times I, I like that, you know, anytime from 11 o'clock on, my brother and I used to always notice that there would be, you know, this this very discernible bite window between 11 and 12. And he used to always be, my brother would always want to be in his best spot, his best run at 11 o'clock because he would just guarantee he was going to get a fish. And, you know, if you look at, um, you know, the charts, uh, you know, on a USGS site, most, most of the time that water temperature is just starting to kind of get that rise at that time. And that can really be a, a trigger point. Um, you know, when it has been cold overnight, I really like to focus on the afternoons, you know, as that water temperature recovers a little bit right. and, um, really, really feel as though that, that, that can be, uh, you know, a key. Um, and it, you know, as you alluded to with Tom, that, you know, that's those sunny conditions can, you know, while they can warm the water, if you get that sun, direct sun in the afternoon, I'm always very leery of pools that have sun just going right down the middle of the pool and the fish's eye. Um, but as soon as you can get some shade, as soon as you, you know, some of those pools get a little bit of shade, it'll turn those fish right on. So I, I feel, and you, you, you alluded to it too, Matt, when we were talking about, you know, you're giving that example about, you know, um, kind of staying committed to it. I really like just fishing right till dark. I always feel as though that last couple hours, you got water temperature, you got low light, you got fish that are generally going to be on the move um, as they're moving up the pool, stirring the pot. Um, I I mean, I can't tell you the number of nice fish I've caught over the years in that last couple hours of the day. Um, So, Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially in winter, you know, the water, you're, you're looking at water temperatures and, you know, uh, here on, on our rivers here, it's that three to five, six bite, that four to six bite where you know, all of a sudden you start seeing midges hatch, maybe some early mm-hmm. black stoneflies start hatching. You see the whole biological drift coming alive. And, you know, when the biological drift comes alive, you're getting one, one degree in water temperature, half a degree, one and a half degrees is like 10 degrees in a human being. Yeah. And, and those water temperatures um, it was spurs the whole metabolism. And when, mm-hmm. when you got a holding alpha fish in, in pre-spawn mode and pools in the wintertime, um, it's that last bite, that evening bite that's always been so big of a bite trigger window that, you know, I, a lot of times in winter, I don't even mess around going out till three o'clock. And, right. you know, the same thing happened yeah. in Atlantic Salmon on, you know, in the gas bay or ever like that. You know, you want to be on that pool just as that sun's going down. And the sun is such a powerful 
powerful uh, signal in the whole in the whole ecosystem because it all the energy of that whole river is based off it and where that that 11 to 12 byte is uncanny whether you're in Iceland whether you're in Quebec whether you're in the Great Lakes it's it's kind of crazy but it, it's it's that position and a lot of it it's it's based a lot on the diurnal cycle of of steelhead in their feeding grounds and we got to remember we're just we're just seeing a little little bit of their window uh when they come into the rivers they're 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 basically we're a nuisance to them to their really lifestyle because they're they're big water fish they feed in the ocean they feed right. in the lakes atlantic salmon the same way and we base our whole philosophy on a very brief period of their lifetime when they're spawning but their their diurnal cycle in the in the big lakes is 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 in the morning they 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 don't have much light down at 50 60 80 100 feet 70 feet that light penetration starts happening at about 11 12 o'clock and if you really you know if you time if you do a chart at 11 12 o'clock even on charters yeah you want to be out in the morning because that, that that's basically based on traffic and not having boats running around out there but that light penetration there's always that last bite 11 12 that charter captains always know that they're going to fill their coolers up on because it's the last moment before they go into a doldrum a passive dormant state like i said in selectivity where they just don't do anything yeah. it's their basic sleeping in the afternoon and then evenings and they perk back up again but um how do you get winter steelhead in in a 32 degree water on 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 your rivers to take rick's swung fly uh, how, so, how do you do it yeah and, and i guess you know to even step back i mean in terms of the water that i fish in the fall you know steelhead when the water temperatures are up they can be pretty much anywhere you know so i mean it, it's you know i like fishing you know, top to bottom in any pool, um, when I can, you know, sometimes you got to skip around other anglers, but, um, you know, and don't avoid even some of the, you know, the faster water, you know, particularly where, you know, where the riffles dump in and I'll fish with just a wide range of stuff. And especially when there's a lot of fishing pressure, because, uh, the fishing pressure can even push some of the, uh, you know, push steelhead into heavier water you know, water that you wouldn't think of as being holding water, but they can feel secure in there. So yeah, I don't really don't pass much by in this, in, in the, in the fall, you know, kind of look at it all. And, um, you know, if it has, you know, even if it's a little bit quick, as long as it has some structure and some cover, some depth, um, I don't pass it by when it comes to the winter though, I do feel as though particularly really winter time, once the, once those fish are in the water, they've been in the water for a while, they're settling down. They're only their only last step is to kind of wait for the water to warm up and spawn. Um, then I'm certainly looking for, you know, the slower, deeper pools. And that's really, you know, kind of the, the you know, part of the key to, to success in the winter for me anyways, is just trying to find that water, you know, so it might be real slow tail outs, might be the deep, you know, slow parts of a middle part of the pool. So, you know, especially if it has some structure, some rocks some boulders, some, you know, some, some troughs in there. Um, so that aids in really kind of slowing down the fly. I, I still want to get it to swing. I want that fish to react to the fly. I'm not thinking in terms of dead drifting a fly. I want it to swing. But that slower water is you know, generally where the fish are going to be located. And it's also where you can kind of control that swing a little bit better so that you can really make that, that fly accessible to the fish. So I'm just trying to, you know, get it down, get it, get it in the, you know, close to the fish's face. Um, 
slowing it down a little bit by, you know, instead of pointing my rod at the fly, like I might do with a normal swing, I'm going to point my rod more across stream kind of that, that, that tends to have a, you know, reduce the, the belly in the line tends to slow the swing down a little bit, extends the amount of time. The fly is kind of in that, you know, in the fish's space and just making it as accessible to the, that's why I think in terms of making it accessible, not necessarily slow because I want it to swing, but just making it accessible to the fish. So it has a little bit of time to make up its mind. Yeah. Um, what, what colors do you like using in the winter time? What are, what is your, if you had a fly, if you're going to go to, to one of these buckets, these deep pools and runs out of the cat or the salmon river and it's February, uh, 10th and it's, it, you know, you had five below last night and it's going to be high of 19 and Rick's going to pull into a pool and he's going to, he wants to catch a steal. He needs to catch a steal. Rick is due to catch a steal at, and, and what, you know, what, what, what fly would you put on? Just out of nowhere. My, my go-to always is one. It's just this black out of black over purple with a little flash in it, marabou tube. So I think anytime that I feel like I need to fish with confidence, I'd probably go in that direction. And that fly has caught fish East coast, West coast. I mean, just everywhere. So, um, that's a good starting point. Uh, a lot of times though, it does depend on, on the watercolor. You know, real. Yeah, I like that in you know water that has a little bit of stain to it, or water that's dark. Um, when you get into really, really clear water, um, you know, I'll tend to go more towards uh, natural colors, olives and browns, and things of that nature. So smaller olive and brown type flies. Yeah. Have you had much success uh, with dry fly fishing in the Great Lakes? And I know my our good friend Larry Halleck, who we're going to have uh, Larry on the program uh, talking about the science of steelhead. Uh, he does a tremendous amount of it. And we just had a piece in Hollywood Waters Journal about Larry talking about, you know, fishing the dry on the Grand River. And uh, we had a piece on the passion for uh, dry fly fishing with Rich Zellman um, out in uh, on the Umpqua, who's also going to be on our podcast Um you know, what is, what is your experience with it? Uh, I know Dry Dropper was big. Carl, our good friend, Carl Wexman, mm-hmm. did a piece for Fly Fisherman um, on dry droppers. And what's your whole philosophy on dry, on fishing dries for Great Lakes Steelhead? When do you see that bite window happening? Um, and, 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 and is it really uh, something you would pursue at, at, a, at full tilt or it's sort of a circumstantial type thing? Um, I, well, I think, yeah, you do have to have the right, the right conditions in the right uh, situation. But I, you know, I've caught a few that way, waking some flies. I haven't uh, been trying that much in recent years. I do need to get back to that again, but I have caught a few on the cat, you know, on waking flies. Um, it seems like the, the best opportunities are when you have pooled up fish in the fall, uh, when the water temperatures are still, you know, above 42, 44 degrees. And, um, also for the, you know, this fish dropping back in the springtime, that might even be, you know, some of the better opportunity on some of the, the, uh, the steelhead alley streams, but in those, both of those situations, when you have fish, you know, fairly clear water, you know, I think, I think even on some of the smaller trips that the opportunities are, are even greater, uh, a couple of my friends, you know, get a few each year, it seems like, you know, like caddis type patterns and things like that, just, just waking them. So it's it definitely opportunities there. You just have to find the, you know, good water temperatures, decent numbers of fish. I think when you, when you can find some fish that are pooled up, get a little agitated and whatnot, I think those are your best targets. Yeah. 
Um, super. So let's, uh, let's take another question, uh, right now. And, uh, we're going to take another real quick break. Uh, and we'll be back with, uh, a question. And we are with Rick Kostich talking about the evolution and modern Great Lakes steelheading. We'll be right back. Hooks and lines have been around since Cro-Magnum man and Neanderthal man, and that's what they caught to catch fish. And today, your hooks and your lines and your tippet material and your leaders are so important. And it's the ultimate challenge in what happens with you on on a trout stream or a salmon and steelhead river. Um, Hooks and lines are by far the most important things when it comes down to your choice of quality. And quality is probably the number one thing on the mind of English Sport Group from New York. Um, Maxima, Leader Material and Leaders, and Daiichi Hooks are their specialties. And I've been a big fan of Maxima as so many fly swingers and spay fishermen for such a long period of time. Their chameleon match up to the toughest conditions, the abrasion, they're, they're stiff enough to turn over large flies. The ultra green and clear uh, are just perfectly blend into a lot of the blue green aqua looking waters of certain salmon rivers that usually have two different types of connotations, a tannic or a very, very bright, clear scenario. Um, Maxima is the ultimate test pound for for heavy, big flies on the swing. Uh, When that fish takes your fly, you're gonna be very protected with Maxima. Daiichi hooks, there's not enough good things I could say about them. Um, In the trout series, the specialty hooks that they have, um, down to their big Alec Jackson spay and their different type of spay hooks that they carry. Um, I would always shop for the best, shop for Daiichi and Maxima, and you will never go wrong. Hello, listeners. If you love the content that you're hearing on the Hollowed Water podcast series, Migratory Spay, um, you will love the, the books that were written by the guests that have been on this podcast series, especially from Topher Brown and myself, who did the inaugural four-hour series. We talked a lot about Atlantic salmon, and uh, if you're addicted to Atlantic salmon, um, Topher wrote his book called Atlantic Salmon Magic, which was printed by Wild uh, Wild River Press, and my book, Brown Trout Atlantic Salmon Nexus, uh, by Skyhorse Publications. Uh, really take you to the next step if you like what you listen to, if you like all the content that we've been talking about in these podcasts. The next step is to go and read and, and get di- to dive deeper into, into what's behind the magic and the journey for these amazing fish. So we encourage you to go to Amazon, go to your local fly shop or to your bookseller um, and request these books, which will make you see a lot more things that you've missed along the way and uh, dive further into the passion for Atlantic salmon. Uh, We are back again talking with Rick Kostich on the evolution. And um, we're going to take a question from... uh, from uh, one of our listener subscribers, and it's Dylan from Chagrin Falls, Ohio. I know Chagrin Falls. It's a beautiful little place uh, on the Chagrin River in the upper parts. Uh, I dated a girl from Chagrin Falls, and uh, it's such a cute little town. Uh, but anyways, he says, hey, Matt and Rick, 
love your books, guys, and I'm a big fan. I fished the alley, and now I've really fallen for the grand. Once you can get away from crowds and swing, I hear it's a mini Cataragus, and this and has similar shale shelf pool run waters. Have you fished it? Also, I heard the Cuyahoga is the new place to swing flies and has wild steelhead. Any thoughts on reading Tricky Water on the Grand if it's similar to the Cataragus? Thanks. Uh, Rick, I'm going to throw that to you because uh, I don't know much about the Grand. I only fished it once, but I'm sure you probably have a little better um, reel on that thing. I have fished the Grand, and there are some similarities in terms of, well, one of it, uh, on the outside, one of its similarities is just uh, – being able to hit it when it's fishable in terms of um, water clarity and whatnot. I mean, they do share a similar uh, uh, situation there in terms of trying to get it, uh, hit the conditions right. Um, I would say the grand, you know, it's, it, it, it flows at about a similar CFS when it's, when it's fishable. Although I think you can fish the, the grand when it's a little bit uh, more of a flow than the cat. Um but there are some similarities in areas with, with respect to the pools and uh, fishing some of the um, some of the pools through the canyon that have more of a shale or uh, um, bedrock type of you know drop offs and things of that nature. Um, you know, one of the things that I always you know kind of focus on in that type of you know that type of uh, structure when you have um, you know ledges and drop-offs and things like that is just really making sure that uh, you're working that, you know, as structure. And it's one of the places where I kind of think in terms of a steelhead being similar to a smallmouth bass, they relate to structure real well. And making sure that you're getting your fly, a lot of times, uh, you know, might require a weighted fly um, to be able to kind of drop along structural elements, um, be able to, uh, um, you know, work the fly down, down deep fast enough along along ledges and things of that nature um you know maybe using a, a little shorter line trying to wait as deep as you can and you know trying to to you know work that fly um you know as close as you can to some some of the structure so you're not getting a real fast swing sometimes you really want to slow that swing down keep it accessible to the fish um i think too just to you know the you know the way you angle your rod both in terms of pointing it across stream or downstream or also, you know, raising the rod up and down. Um, you know, a lot of times, you know, in that, in that, those bedrock type of pools, um, there's going to be raises and drops in the bedrock. You know, the more that you can read that and understand, you know, the, the makeup of those pools allows you to kind of, you know, fish that fly in a way that you can kind of drop it in and out, you know, so I guess what I'm getting at is a lot of those pools really just aren't a lot of them. You can fish just with pretty much a straight cast and swing across and others. You really just got to recognize what structure exists there and how to, uh, you know, best attack that structure. And again, a lot of times it's going to be just really trying to uh, fish a fly close to it without hanging it up on it. Yeah. Um, we're going to get into spay casting now and, and the whole spay philosophy. And, uh, you know, I had Topher uh, Brown and, and Tom Larimer, and we talked about how the evolution happened so quickly. And, um, you know, we were, we were playing around with wind cutters and accelerators and long belly tapers. And then deck came along with his, you know, Delta tapers. And, uh, you know, some guys were still splicing lines and, 
you know, you had the Vincent and, and Gosworth combinations. And, you know, when when did you really embrace, you know, Skagit casting was basically built for for uh, was was made for um, for the Skagit River and deep winter steelheading and dredging and and and, and you know, fishing sink tips and fishing big, big uh, weighted intruders or intruders and um, things that were meant to, to totally be different, different from what, you know, spay casting on the river spay back in the 80s, which we had a beautiful article in Hollowed Waters Journal, the uh, the spay psyche and, you know, you're swinging flies close to the surface for a fish that moves close to the surface, Atlantic salmon. Um, and you weren't thinking about penetrating deep pockets and buckets and runs. And um, so when, when Skagit casting and Skagit fishing came along with the lines and the whole uh, sink tips and, and, and the tea, teeny teas and all the, and the tungsten grains and things of that nature, what, when did you embrace Skagit casting and, and how did you apply it? And are you still predominantly a Skagit caster today or are you a, are you a more a Scandi touch and go guy? Um, you know, or do you vary your techniques? Um, you know, let's start off with Skagit and how you embraced it and, and what were your, you know, first lines that you used and how did you, uh, incorporate to, to fishing your waters, the cat, for instance? Um, you know, like, like I mentioned that, that pike taper was, was similar, I think in, in general to, you know, to what I eventually are even the Skagit heads today. So, um, even back then I knew that that was a versatile fishing tool that really matched well with what we were trying to do in terms of fishing a fly down. Um, but before we got, so I, my transition was from that using that pike taper into the wind cutters and I was using the wind cutters, you know, on our, on our rivers here and as well as, you know, on my trips out to BC so, um, you know, I really like the wind cutter lines, but they, again, the, the heads were a little long looking back at it now. Um, even, you know, not, not long on the BC rivers, but certainly a little long for what we were doing on the Great Lakes. So when the Skagits came around, I mean, I could see that they were the perfect size and perfect delivery system for what we were trying to do. Although the, the original Skagit heads, I thought, felt a little bit clunky. And maybe it was just a matter of time before I really kind of lined up the right head with the right rod. Um, but the original heads, I, so I didn't, I, I, I guess I didn't like the clunkiness of the feeling of, of the original heads. But again, knew that they were the, um, a, a key component to a good delivery system for what we were trying to do. Uh, and I think, you know, things smoothed out as, as time went on, you know, both, um, uh, Rio and Airflow started making, eventually making some uh, Skagit heads that just had a little more feel to them. And, yeah. um, you know, I think, uh, you know, then I really embraced that, that, that style. In terms of what I do today, I, I really kind of match it to my fishing mat, you know, for the most part. Um, you know, when I'm fishing a fly down in the water column and weighted flies and whatnot, you know, I continue to use uh, Skagit heads. But when I, any opportunity I can get to, to fish fly up a higher in the water column, you know, I, I really like, I prefer to, to cast a Scandi. And I really like, you know, that, that feel, the touch and go feel. I really, it gives me, it's a really nice rhythm to it. So, um, yeah, I don't really consider myself a Skagit caster or a Scandi caster. I really, and even, you know, when I, when I fish out west, um, you know, I'll still use some mid-belly space. 
And, you know, last year I'm starting to kind of toy around more with some really long bellies too, and, and some longer rods just for, from a casting standpoint. So I, I really don't, I don't think of my casting style as one or the other. I do feel in terms of knowing enough about the casting stroke though, to know what I have to change for when I, I make a change in the, the length of the head or the style of the head and how my stroke has to accommodate that. Um, I think that's really a you know key element of you know my successful casting, but I don't really feel like I have a style. Um, just more more accommodating what I'm using at that time, and, and you know I've, my, my fishing in general has gone to smaller rods, shorter rods. You know, from a standpoint, I just enjoy a fish's fight on a shorter rod. Um, uh, you know, I think it allows me to 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 fish a wider range of areas. You don't have to worry about casting obstructions as much. Um, but at the same time, you know, I, I, again, I try to match that with the fishing that I'm doing. So if I'm, you know, I'm fishing deeper water, I know I'm going to be wading deeper. I might select a you know, longer rod for those situations. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, there's, uh, you know, I talked a lot with Topher about, you know, the, 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 uh, the evolution now is going towards traditionalism and long belly lines and, you know, mm-hmm. what the Scotsman used to do and, uh, you know, those big, big, long strokes and having so much line anchored on the water and, and mm-hmm. generating power from those long belly anchors. And, uh, you know, it's like we're, we're going through, you know, what when we get a hold of something, we make it more complex. And, and spay fishing today is, is complex. And then it's just simple. If you want to catch a Great Lake steelhead, you get a good Skagit rig and you get, you know, the right flies and you learn how to Skagit cast and, mm-hmm. you know, cast, a, you know, a double spay. And so if, if you're... You know your casting cadence and 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 what kind of casts you like to use. You know, are, do you do you have a couple? Do you stick with double space snap tees, snake rolls? How do you know? Do you peri poke? What what do you like to do? And how do you view it for for? The, I'm sure you base it on the waters and the wind conditions and things of that nature. But you know, if Rick's going to just cast today, how you how you how are you going to what couple, what, what, what ones are you going to use uh, as your go-tos all the time? What, what do you like? To do? Yeah, again, it really does. I mean, I hate to, it does depend, I think, on how I'm rigged. Um, I, I really just, I love using the single, single spay. I mean, I love the simplicity. I like the, uh, you know, kind of the, the poetry meets power type of, uh, you know, combination of that cast. Um, and with, with a Scandi line um, or even a, a light, Skagit rig when I'm just using a Skagit, maybe uh, a uh, poly leader and a lightly weighted fly. You know, I'll use the the single spay on you know with my right shoulder, or I'll use it with my left shoulder as well. Um, so I, I do really like the simplicity of the, of that of that cast once you really get the hang of it. Um, but when it comes to you know Skagit fishing and when I'm fishing a heavier tip or heavier flies, um, you know it just becomes a little bit little bit more cumbersome to use the the single so uh, you know generally use double spay or snap tee although i've kind of developed a little bit of a a movement with the single spay even when i when i'm using heavier skagit lines to kind of kind of convert the single spay into more of a little more of a uh, sustained anchor cast so instead of just really touching and going i kind of let it touch and continue to move backwards as i set up the cast kind of keeps everything elevated so I can make uh, even a, a good Skagit cast with a single spay. Yeah. Do you peri poke much? Um, I do only where I have 
a lot of it's, you know, where I have obstructions behind me. So, you know, on the Niagara, where in, when I'm fishing these spots where there's gorge walls right behind me, even with a standard Skagit line, sometimes there's still not enough room um, to get, to form your D-loop, you know, you know, hit the rocks. It's going to hit some overhanging brush. So in those situations, I'll just peri poke a little bit. Um, it's it's a little bit more of a fierce, a forceful peri poke. So I actually push my anchor point out about twenty feet in front of me. So then from that anchor point to where I set, set my D loop, my line never comes behind my casting position. So it creates a situation where I can make a cast with literally no line going behind me. And it's um, so it's kind of a modified peri poke. That's pretty much the only time I do it. The only other time I'll use a peri poke is when I've kind of screwed up the setup and, uh, you know, instead of onboarding the cast entirely, I'll be able to kind of salvage something and get the line back out there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, let's talk a little bit about spay casting versus spay fishing. You know, a lot of times when I have clients and they're, they're, they're they get out there and they just want to boom one towards the far bank and it's just like, you know, okay, so are we going to have a casting competition here? Or are we going to, are we going to go fishing? Um, so it's, it's a mental state where you have to dial yourself in. Okay. I made a couple of casts to feel good that I, uh, my cast is right on, but how do you view that whole thing? And when you get to a river, what do you do? Do you just start launching casts just to, to make sure you're in tune and then you start poking it apart, but it's a discipline that you have to, uh, uh, mentally prepare yourself in because a lot of times we're casting over fish. Our lines are spooking fish, our clumsy, you know, snap tees and things of that nature with which the uh, Europeans can't stand because they say it always spooks their Atlantic mm-hmm. salmon. You know, how do you mentally prepare that? I mean, that's a really good point too. That's the other reason I like the, you know, the single spray when I kind of just, you know, from a stealth standpoint, um, you know, I always consider myself an angler before a caster. So, and I consider the, you know, the the spay rod, whatever one I've selected for that day is more a fishing tool than I consider it a casting tool. So uh, in terms of if I need to make shorter casts, I, I really never think in terms of that I want to just unleash the cat. Yeah, sure, we all do want to do that. I mean, you know, when you, when you get the opportunity, I mean, that's part of, you know, that's part of what we enjoy about spay casting is, you know, kind of having the right tool for the job in your hand. You can launch long casts if needed. But I like to kind of keep that in perspective that, you know, I'll launch the last long casts if they are needed. And, um, you know, if, if it's more you want to cover structure, I mean, that's really one of the things that I really want try to stress anytime that, um, you know, I'm teaching or guiding is you know use it as a tool to know know where you think the fish are you know why they might be there and how you want that fly to fish you know near that structure and that may require just a shorter cast at least initially and maybe a length and long you know longer either the next pass or on the next cast but don't be afraid to uh you know use it as a tool to to cover the water even if that doesn't mean bombing out long casts because it's still an effective tool you know to to make repeated efficient casts and to um, uh, control the line and control your presentation. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's, uh, you know, so it's so, it's so amazing because uh, you know, and I, I spent a lot of time in Scotland when, uh, 
you know, uh, my son Peter went to school in Edinburgh and, uh, and, you know, I got to see some of the guys out there. And, and, you know, what's interesting is they're all really good casters out there and they're, mm-hmm. they're, they do a lot of traditional casting and they, they do a lot of overhead casting, although something we don't, we, we don't focus as much on here. A lot of their rivers are pretty wide open, uh, especially in Russia and, in Norway and and in Scotland, there's a lot of big openness to them, um, and and they do a lot of overhead casting. They do a lot, they're all just you know more innate. Like they're good soccer players innately. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're good spay casters. And but what what interests me is that you know and I go to Gilly's hut there and, and they'd have their you know their guidelines and their gale force rods and uh, and and their hardies all you know rigged up with with the best you know rigs and flies and reels and stuff and right next to them they'd have these super high tech G Loomis spinning rods uh, rigged up <laughs> with big Rapalas and 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 spoons and uh, you know you get in a ghillie's boat there it's like you, you got your high tech spinning rods and spoons and then you have your high tech spare rods and it's like okay wait these things are like you know yin and yang man it's like wow you know these things are good and bad and evil and and yeah. and, and their whole philosophy is basically you know i'm here to catch a goddamn fish yeah. and uh you know, and, and I might get one this year, you know, a fucking yeah. guy, man. He's just all going to get a fish, you know? Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, it's like, I don't give a hell. You know, I could cast. And, and sometimes we, we're more preoccupied with casting yeah. than we are fishing. So yeah. you got to, it's got to be a tool and you have to approach the water looking at the, the seams and the runs and the buckets. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we, I think we need to spend more time once we become spay addicts we we got to spend more time fishing at yeah. once we get our cast dialed in and that these yeah. guys are fishing because they might not catch a fish this year yeah. and uh you know that's just that's their whole yeah. presentation but let's talk really quickly about um your fly uh, evolution your tying evolution you know you still you know your marabou spays were were some of the first ones that i've seen in you know wild steelhead and salmon and 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 they're still your favorites, as you say. And but you've really embraced tube flies tremendously. And and what really got you inspired in that whole tube tube uh, world and and um and and the beauty of tube flies? Talk a little bit about that. You know, I I don't know exactly what the the, the direct influence was there. I know I got you know through the shop became initiated with with tube and tube fly designs. I just I just really like the simplicity of you know of that type of a fly um i like um you know the versatility of being able to to use different weights in the tubes um you know i really like the 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 idea of having that hook in the rear of the materials i can really control where i place the hook relative to the materials you know using the short shank hook um you know there's no question that has a significant impact on the number of fish that you land um, you know, the fact the fly kind of rides up when, when you hook a fish gets out of the, out of the way, when you're, when you're taking the hook out of the fish's mouth, the fish, the flies tend to last longer, you know, and, and even in terms of, you know, a conventional hook, you know, if your, your, your hook gets dinged up, you can just exchange it out. Um, you know, I, I think those are all, you know, their, their advantages also of using, you know, similar advantages of using shanks. Hey, you know, and I do tie some shank shank flies, but just there just seems to be a certain simplicity to just whipping up some flies on a tube and not having to worry about the the connecting wire of a of a shank and whatnot. Um, that just has always just you know worked for me, worked for me well. You know, and the flies I like to tie just seem to uh, you know transition well to tubes. Yeah. Um, 
So let, you know, I think what I, I like, want to talk a little bit about it. I was Lake run Browns. Um, you know, you, you, I've seen some beautiful photos you posted on social media and, and your, your photography is getting really super awesome and, and, and your stuff you've shared in your books and with us at hollowed waters journal, we really appreciate, you know, the stuff you're doing, but your, your stuff is getting so much better. And, uh, I'm just loving it every time you post something. And that's, you know, I, I, I saw you got some really nice Lake Run Browns in the, this, through this winter and stuff. What's your philosophy on them? How do they take differently from steelhead? How do you approach them from a swing standpoint? Do you slow your fly speed down for them? Um, you know, what's your whole difference between the way you fish for them and steelhead? Well, certainly from a swinging standpoint, you know, I guess the first thing is, you know, you know, targeting the brown trout either before or more likely after the spawn. Um, you know, when they do come in, they spawn in the fall, generally October and through November. So really trying to uh, target that right after the spawn is over with. Um, you know, those fish really just kind of go on the feed. I think if there's a difference between steelhead and the browns, I think steelhead react to a swing swung fly, you know, kind of instinctually, you know, they're predators. They may not actually be eating it because they're feeding. They may be just left over. They can't let something get away. They're going to, there's probably numerous reasons why there is numerous reasons why a steelhead takes a fly, but just that, that predatory instinct I think is, is a prime one. Um, but with, with flake run Browns, I think those fish after the spawn, they're on the feed and, um, you know, they're, they're grabbing to eat. And, you know, certainly I think that's the one difference. I don't know if there's a, a lot of difference in the, in the takes or the grabs. Um, I do feel as though brown trout a lot of times just kind of sneak up from behind on the fly and just grab it. You kind of feel more of the weight of the fish as opposed to kind of feeling the, the weight of the fish in a pull you know, more, more steelhead times, you know, more hookups with steelhead. I kind of feel more of a pull on the fly. Um, actually taking a little bit of line out right away. And a lot of times you just, with the, with the brown trout, you kind of just feel that weight of the fish initially. Um, but I think those are, those are the big things. And, you know, I think we you know, consequently use more flies for brown trout that um, have a little bit more of a natural bait look to them, you know, kind of representing, trying to play on that uh, feeding instinct. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what is your experience with Atlantic salmon? How, where have you fished and, and, and how do you view them with steelhead and, um, you know, your whole, uh, your whole take on uh, Salmo Salar? There, there was a period where I was fishing, you know, salmon fairly regularly, probably in the late nineties and early, probably through about 2003, 2004. Um, I was going to the gas bay and, you know, fished a number of rivers up there um enjoyed it and something i really want to get back to actually it was something i was considering doing last year not even considering i was going to do it and then you know the the covid thing kind of locked me out so i do want to get back into going up there um it's it's to me my experience has been it's you know there's a fair amount of differences between at least on the gas bay rivers and um in and what at least when we fish we you know we've always fished that early season june um first part of june into the middle part of june trying to fish those you know find those early fish coming up um but the the one thing that i and i really enjoyed it um you know it's it's 
my experience was it was it was tough put a lot of hours and a lot of casts for you know for the you know the limited success that i had um but it, it, you know if i had to equate the biggest difference between the two is you know i think steel had take a wider range of of holds and water and you can kind of cover more water it seemed as with uh with the salmon um at least at that time of year they would be found in more or less a handful of pools and within those pools, a lot of times they would be found in, you know, at least, at least the fish that would take a fly would be found in very specific taking lies um, so that it didn't feel as though you cover the water the same in steelhead as you do with Atlantic salmon. It seemed like, you, you know, you, you really want to focus in on the prime areas and salmon rivers where with steelhead, I have a tendency, particularly, you know, when the water temperatures are up to really just fish almost all the water. So I think that was that that's the biggest difference that I, you know, kind of observed, yeah. but, but, but it's not a bad difference. You know, it just, uh, it's a difference in the way you want to approach things. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jim Lorenz did a book with you guys on Atlantic salmon. That was a really nice book. How did you, uh, associate with Jim Lorenz? Jim Lorenz, by the way, was a hockey player for the Buffalo Sabres. And, um, how did you guys get hooked up? Yeah, I met Jim a long time ago. I think, um, he was, he was, um, working with the Orvis shop on some casting clinics, the Orvis shop there in Buffalo. And, uh, you know, kind of met him through there and we became good friends after that fished quite a bit together. And, um, you know, he's still, he's spending some time in Florida now, but you know, he's an excellent, uh, steelhead fisherman and a really good Atlantic salmon fisherman. He has a camp on the Miramichi and spends his summers up there. Well, that's very cool. Yeah. Uh, we're going to pop over really quick to New York trout streams and, uh, uh, my boyhood, uh, my all my experiences of 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 what brought me to the dance was on all these little tiny trout streams, the Wiscoy, the East Coy, Oatka, you know, Ishwa, all these creeks. And every weekend, I was buried in these things. And uh, you know, it, it I talk so much about them in selectivity. I talk so much about them in nexus, and uh, they're memories that you know you can't uh, you can't shake off. And yeah. uh, and even to this day, I talk about them in, in my Hollowed Waters journal. And, um, you know, I have a whole piece on opening day and the glory of opening day coming in the spring issue. And, uh, you know, what? how are they doing? Um, I noticed a lot of posts you made uh, over the years of, you know, they're not they're not in what they used to be. Uh, you know, the wild trout populations are there are very fragile uh, and, you um, you know, what What has been their demise in some respects? Uh, I'm sure they're still thriving to a certain degree, but compared to those glory days of, of you know, the, when I fished them back in the, geez, 60s and 70s and when I was a kid, um, you know, what, what you see the major transformations there and how do you think this new trout season that New York came out with, which I personally think is absolutely ridiculous to, to, to change things. I always thought to protect fish, from April 1st to September 30th, wild fish need that. I My little trout streams here in the forest have that protection where you have to, you know, you go out April 1st, you celebrate the right September 30th, you celebrate the closing. And I, I, I'm a big believer in that if you open things up, it's going to harm wild populations. How, how are these streams doing and, and how do you view these new regulations? Uh, I think they're doing okay. Um, you know, even though we'll focus in on the Wiscoy, which is, you know, just such a great, has been historically a great wild, wild fishery. The numbers have definitely dipped there. Um, not sure exactly, you know, what, what is the, the root cause? Um, you know, 
could be farming activity, could even just be a little, you know, could be an impact of, of climate change and war, um, warmer water temperatures. But there has been a, a bit of a comeback in the last few years in the numbers. They do, uh, you know, surveys you know, every couple of years. So I, I, I am helpful. I am hopeful that things will, you know, kind of right themselves there, at least to a point where it maintains as a, as a decent fishery. There are a few others, you know, like I mentioned, um, you know, the Elton, there's a few others that uh, um, where the numbers seem to be on the rise and, you know, where there is, you know, good numbers of wild, wild fish. So I do, I am hopeful that there will be continued to, to be some of those uh, diamonds in the rough, you know, that we'll be able to, you know, and again, talking small streams, small fish, but they're wild and it's, you know, makes it, makes it exciting. Um, in terms of the regulations, yeah, well, I tend to agree with you, Matt. I mean, even though, you know, some of these rivers did have open seasons throughout the years already, I tend to feel that, you know, the fish need a break at some point, you know, and, you know, even though there's not a lot of people fishing throughout the winter time for trout, I, I do feel as though, you know, our fisheries generally need a, you know, need a break. These fish are, you know, with, with the techniques and everything, equipment that's available today you know the, the fish are getting you know seeing stuff all year round and it would be good if they had a break so i i do have a you know a tendency to agree with you on that one okay, okay speaking of break we're going to take one more break before we wind up we're going to take one more question and we're just going to have a quick uh quick one minute uh question uh answer period here so we are with rick Kutch-Stitch talking about the Great Lakes evolution of steelhead fishing and uh, New York trout and Lake Run Browns and all kinds of great things. We'll be right back. Hello, listeners. As publisher of Hollowed Waters Journal, I'm really proud to bring you this magazine that we've put together and we've been going really strong for the last year. Uh, our accolade winning and amazing in-depth issues full of sumptuous photography, fly patterns and extensive tactical information can be purchased individually now in our archive series for you to read and reread over and over. We treat each topic and article as a mini Bible on the subject that you will explore with your passion and journey for trout, salmon, and steelhead fly fishing. And we'll hopefully rethink your relationship with these fish and make you fly addicted for life. Northern Magazine has the content and depth as Hollowed Waters Journal. Find out what you've been missing and come to hollowedwaters.com today and subscribe. All right, we're back with Rick Kustich, and we are going to take a question from somebody. His name is Larry from London, Ontario. And the question to Rick, this is specifically to Rick. Um, we've all read about Scottish Atlantic salmon gillies stoning pools to stir fish up and get them to strike. Can you explain to Hollywood Waters listeners how putting up a drone with a video camera on it above a steelhead pool can have that same effect? Yeah, I, I think anytime it's a setup question. Rick, yeah, I, I know, know, but I, I do think that uh, you know, From there, Larry Halleck. <laughs> That's Larry. Oh, Halleck. this is <laughs> okay, Rick. So this was uh, this was a funny question. So he, he told me this story about the drone and how does that you know how does that stone a pool. <laughs> So this we were we were we were filming uh, that's the Spay Days video with with Robert Thompson, and uh, 
And he, Robert was just playing around with his drone and he, we hadn't hooked a fish all day long. And he puts the, he puts the drone up and within, you know, two minutes, I, I hook a fish and he's got this, RT's got this drone just buzzing by my head. It sounded like it was right by my ear. I thought he was, he, he did, he was just learning how to use this thing. And I thought, that, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, drone was going to come and clip my ear off. And, uh, but he got some pretty good footage of, of the, of the, of the whole scene and it was, uh, came out pretty good, but yeah, that <laughs> was, it was a good luck, I guess, that he put the, the drone up. That's what got it to, got it to, got it to eat, I guess. It's the stoning the pool with a drone with yeah. a very expensive drone. drone. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, we're going to, we're going to get moving here and, um, BC experiences. So you, you, you've, you've fell in love with BC and, um, I just talked to Larry yesterday and, um, uh, he spent a really rough fall out there this fall and he said it was absolutely brutal and to fish for four or five days and, you know, have one strike and, uh, you know, things are rough on the West coast. And, you know, I've been talking to when I talked to Tom Larimer and guys like, you know, Kovic and those guys and, and Jeff Hickman and those guys, you know, they're, they're, they're struggling and, and, you know, we're, you know, it's, 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 it's things that all fisheries go through and we're, we have these opportunities here in the Great Lakes that we're, we're having interesting times with wild fish. Um, what was your, you know, BC experiences? How, you know, what impressed you the most about this, the indigenous salt and then the grab and, and, and how these fish fought? I mean, what was the, what was the charm? What was the romance that really got you going that, Hey, I got to get my BC fix in this year uh, versus just fishing the cat or the Niagara? Well, I, I think I always have had a, um, interest in wild native fish. So anytime I've traveled or for the most part is to go to a, a native environment. So I really feel as though there's a you know real connection, deep connection to years of evolution. So I think that's always been, you know, one draw to kind of, you know, complete the cycle of, you know, steelhead fishing here in the Great Lakes and to really kind of get connected to where you know, where it originated. Um, and there's just the beauty of those rivers in, in British Columbia, just, you know, stunning in a lot of those areas. And um, just the size overall, you know, size of the rivers and being able to spread out and rotate a pool and things of that nature. So all of those things have been a deep attraction to me for years. And, um, you know, just the incredible beauty of those, you know, wild native fish. You know, I think those are always the things, you know, I started that, you know, kind of that journey with my brother too. Um, the first, I think three trips out there were with Jerry and, um, you know, it was a, it was a nice exploratory situation for me. I think it rekindled, um, you know, him and I, you know, did so much exploring and him more than me, but in, in Montana and the, you know, seventies and eighties and, and, um, you know, it was kind of a new chapter for us to start that. And, um, you know, I continued it, you know, I, you know, really my first trip there was in 95 and have made just numerous trips back ever since. Yeah. Yeah. The, the mag, the magnitude of, of the beauty of those rivers and, and, uh, you know, I fished the Babine, um, mm-hmm. was the last place that I fished and, and it was just like stunning to see these fish that live in such beautiful wilderness and, uh, you know, and to hook a 20 pound plus fish that'll straighten out a, yeah. a Bartlead, heavy Bartlead two odd hook. And, and, you know, you're like, what the hell? And you're, you know, you pull out your 12 pound maximum. The guy looks at you and like, oh, no, nah, we're doing 20 pound maximum. Yeah. Here. Yeah. And, 
you know, or 30 pound max when you're like, you know, what the hell's going on here? It's a total beast. And, and, um, you know, I talked to Larry and hopefully these fish will come back and it's only a matter of time that things, you know, they never will go away, but it's just, you know, something that I think sometimes when you get less pressure on these waters, things rebound and it's something you talked about with the cataragus and, yeah. um, you know, you, maybe numbers are, numbers are bad. I mean, we're yeah. not, we're not a numbers fishery. These are trout, salmon, steelhead. And what I talk about in hollowed waters, these are holy fish and yeah. they shouldn't be treated like cardboard and racked up in numbers. And no. that was one of the biggest downfalls in steelheading in the great lakes is we treated yeah. them like just, you know, 30 for 40 or 27 for 67. And, and that just it just demeans you as a as an individual, demeans your ethics and morality, it demeans and demeans the fish. And I think you know today, um, you know, appreciating every hookup you get is is what it should all be about, yeah. and it makes you feel so much more fulfilled yeah. in that whole thing. And that's where our attention at Hollowed Waters Journal is about is about the passion and the journey and and, and the love. Uh, that we give for these fish. We're going to end up here with a, and I, and I just uh, end with that, man. I, I really, really hope that, um, you know, that, that this year, last year was, a you know, just a blip. I mean, it's been the numbers in BC or at least on the skein, I have been kind of dropping each year for the last three or four years. Um, you know, I'm just very hopeful that we'll see some kind of rebound this year. Uh, you know, I, I feel as though sometimes we're, you know, kind of going into unprecedented waters with, you know, the various factors of climate change. And, you know, I, th- I think the commercial fishing practices, um, both in terms of dumping a lot of hatchery fish and just the, the way that the, the salmon are fished for are, are taking a toll on the steelhead populations as well. I'm just really hopeful it's it's not a real deep-seated problem that's going to, you know, create a whole crash. So, Got my fingers crossed. I was pretty sad last year. I mean, it really kind of impacts me. I mean, it's been such a, you know, integral part of my life. Um, and I really had planned to spend a lot of time there in the, you know, the rest of my life. And um, yeah. I'm just very hopeful that it, you know, kind of comes back and that it just was a blip. But we'll see yeah. what happens. Yeah. All right. One minute zip clips. Favorite okay. state cast. I think you already know that. Well, you already said that one. Yeah, I think yeah, you know, I, I would opt for the spe- the single spay anytime I can. If I caught you swinging on the cat, which rod line are your favorites other than the ones you lost? Remember <laughs> that one? Yeah, yeah. Um, I I think right now I just would yeah you know, I, I stick with about a you know I got an eleven foot eight weight um, you know Scott uh, and and really that's my go to for a lot of the rivers in the Steelhead Alley. You know, if I know I'm going to be wading deeper, I might go a little bit more. Um, and then just using, you know, pretty much uh, as much as I would prefer to use Scandies, you know, a large percentage of the time I'm just using a, a, a Rio's gadget. Yeah. One of their floral new launches. Floral or Maxima? Are you a floral guy or a Maxima? Uh, I'm both. <laughs> I, I prefer to go with uh, Maxima and uh, I'll use it most of the time. But when the water gets ultra clear, I'll go to fluorocarbon. You had only one fly to swing for the cat, which would it be? I mean, we've kind of already covered that, the black and purple marabou spay with a little bit of flash in there. For the Salmon River? Um, you know, I've done well on like a white bunny spay over there. So I think that would be a, it would be a good match. For the Niagara? My, my, my white um, marabou spay with, you know, on a, on a copper tube with uh, some silver flash boo in there. What do you like to drink? Um, I, I love a good, 
um, New England IPA. So there's some great breweries here in, in Buffalo and Western New York. Other half brewery is anytime I can get their stuff, I'm on that. Favorite food? Oh, and, and I'll go back to, to, to the drink. You know, I can't, uh, you know, when I'm just sipping around uh, some Glen Meringue 12, 12 year is my favorite single malt. Um, favorite food? Hey, I'm from Buffalo, wings and pizza. Beautiful. And I, and I can't, I never pass down good barbecue either. What do you do when you're not fishing? Cause you're always fishing. If it's not musky, it's bass. If it's not steelhead, it's trout. If this guy's like crazy, what do you do? What is a significant, beautiful other that uh, you post pictures of? What do you guys do? Well, when it's, when it's warm out, we do a lot of biking, a lot of kayaking. You know, we try to try to do a lot of outdoor stuff, a lot of, a lot of great places to, to, to eat and uh, have a, have a cold one outside here in Buffalo, especially when the water, when the weather gets warmer. So we enjoy doing that long walks, things of that nature. You know, she doesn't fish, but we, we do a lot of outdoor stuff together when we can. And you uh, root for the Bills, of course, right? Oh, my God. That what a heartbreaker, subject. huh? Oh, that was still, devastating. Still not over that. Still not over that. I, can't, I haven't been able to watch football since. <laughs> Favorite book? Uh, classic book. Like, um, are you a Hemingway guy? What do you you know, I, I do like Hemingway. I, I would say I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to tell you two here, though. The, um, a River Never Sleeps, Roderick Hayne Brown. Always yeah. one of my favorites. You know, I just yeah. love his writing style. Love the way he can paint a picture and, uh, and you know tell you something significant from a fishing standpoint all at once. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think though I, I kind of revisited this. You know, I, I, and I, this is kind of a seems like a softball choice, but a river runs through it. Always kind of really talked to me. Um, not, I know it had a, a a significant impact on popularizing fly fishing. So. You know, from that standpoint, it almost has some negative connotations. But I just really enjoyed how that book kind of wove fly fishing and the meaning of fly fishing through family life, and um, how it meant so much, you know, to that family. And yeah. um, you know, I, I just read a a book by um, um, uh, by Norman's son John, and it's called Home Waters, and it really yeah, delved into some of the details. And um, really trials and tribulations of, of, you know, of that time in the late 1800s, 1900s in Montana. So I really kind of got a deeper appreciation for, you know, what, what that book, you know, the, the uh, river runs through. It was really all about. Super. New book projects coming up, Rick. Working on a book. I really actually working on it. It's, it's done except for some photography. And it's uh, kind of tentatively titled Modern Spay. Um, and it's going to be more not a casting book although there's a casting chapter it's going to be a fishing book and how you can apply i think if i had to sum up what the objective of the book is it's how you can apply spay fishing to just a wide range of situations beautiful in fishing wonderful well sir it's been an absolute pleasure thank you um so much rick kustich uh we talked on so many things uh from the evolution revolution of you know great lake steelheading to trout streams to reading water and it was just so it's a pleasure to talk to you and go back to our roots my roots and um thank you so much rick and uh we really uh we really appreciate everybody coming to hollowed waters journal and uh our new issue is going to come out April 1st. Um, and uh, thank you, Rick, for being a part of it and contributing to it. And uh, 
keep the faith and keep uh, burning and cranking the way you're doing it, buddy, because um, it's so inspiring to see your stuff and uh, your passion unfolds constantly. Uh, thank you, Rick. Thank, thanks, Matt. I mean, really, thanks for having me here. Um, yeah, and I just, I really looking forward to, you know, continuing the continuing the journey and continue to grow on with this uh, with the spay game and fly fishing in general. And uh, keep up the good work. You're doing a great job with uh, with hallowed waters, and uh, I wish you all the success in the future. Thank you, Rick. Thank you, folks. Thanks for listening. Be well. Be safe. Take care of yourself and everybody. Be healthy and uh, come to hallowedwaters.com and uh, listen to our podcasts and uh, more coming. Uh, thank you. Uh, all the all the blessings and and goodness to all. Goodbye.